South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, a very good foggy morning around San Antonio and the Hill Country. And, uh, oh, man, just talked to my engineer. He said it was foggy driving in from... Uh, the northeast and for me it was really foggy driving in from the northwest so if you're heading out this morning plan on taking a little extra time because if you got any sense you're you're not going to be driving anywhere near the speed limit until this fog lifts because it's uh it's kind of like a fall morning out there it's just it's crisp but it's not cold lots of moisture in the air it's going to be a beautiful day lots of fun stuff going on too nature fest uh kicks off uh, i believe around nine o'clock uh this is the big event the green spaces alliance does uh every fall and golly you've got uh castle lake ranch turkey shoot going on a little later this morning candelia volunteer fire department has her big mexican food supper tonight that's where i'll be uh there's just a lot of fun things to talk about and to do uh, lots of stuff to do out in the garden, uh, out in the flower beds. <laughs> you name it. It's just going to be a good day to be outside. Spend as little of it inside as possible. Ah, we've got Clint and Sandy to start the show off. Means there are a couple of open lines if you want to get in early. Uh, it's a good time to call now. You know the number, 210-599-5555. But as always, hate to keep people waiting. So, uh, Jimmy, let's just get started. Clint is up first. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? It's uh, foggy out there. Foggy down in your end of the world this morning? Not a bit. Chris, clear. Awesome day to go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, my alarm goes off at 3.15 on Saturday mornings, and this is one of those mornings when... Oh, man, I was tempted to hit, hit the snooze, but said, no, you better get up and go on in because, you know, you always always wonder if something's going to be out there to slow you down, whether it's an accident or whatever else. And sure enough, fog slowed me down this morning, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be a great day. I certainly hope so. Now, I, I got one of them real goofy uh, country questions for you. Well, that always makes it fun. What can we talk about? Any chance there's any kind of uh, kind of like a flea preventative for chickens to take care of the mites and fleas that like to come around every so often? You know, diatomaceous earth is uh, a great thing to put in the nesting boxes. Do they have nesting boxes, or um, how you know what what kind of coop do you have for them? Oh, I got a, a good coop. They got their own boxes and stuff. Yeah. Um, I did sprinkle the de. Every every time uh, the doggone skunk shows up, they bring a flea infestation. So I'm oh yeah. That and, uh, well, those chicken cute, those not worth the aggravation. Yeah, and those, those little stick tight fleas that the chickens get that is kind of unique to them. They're a whole different you know mess. But no, uh, there's nothing negative about de. If the chickens eat some of it, it's certainly not going to hurt them. It actually help a little bit with internal parasites uh, i don't I, I don't know that much about how a uh chicken's intestinal system works it was actually one of bruce dooley's maybe his daughter was doing research and uh found that the way that you know and i'd always wondered because we've known that de is a good wormer but uh most of the internal parasites that animals get 
uh, don't have a hard shell. They have a cuticle, and I think, how on earth can the, the DE work against that? And her research showed that the DE is a, just a mild irritant uh, to the intestinal lining, and it makes it form like a, a mucus mass. It just sweeps the uh, intestinal parasites out of the animal. So thought that was very interesting, and I don't know that uh, I don't know the chickens have anything internal that uh, would would be causing them problems. But I, I mentioned that just to let you know it's safe even if they consume it. Um, so that's that's probably. Uh, the best preventive. That and, of course, putting out beneficial nematodes every now and then, which will certainly take care of the fleas that the skunks bring in. But uh, those those stick-type fleas and the kind of unique fleas that chickens get, I think you'd almost have to just keep a bit of it in the in the nesting material, and it ought to work very well. I've never heard of a stick-type flea until they came around this time. And, uh, well, I got them locked up so they can't spread them around. Yeah, I bombarded the floor with DE. I roasted the floor and anything with my pear burner to kill anything off on the spot. <laughs> uh, you went, you went nuclear on them, so to speak. Oh, I'm I'm beyond mad. So, uh, in I put a tire in there full of DE, and they weren't getting into it in my satisfaction. So I grabbed up every bird and rubbed them down with DE. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe liking that. Yeah, Dr. Kirby gets a show uh, or gets a call on his show about them periodically. It's been a lot of years since I had chickens, and uh, they were not a problem. God, that goes all the way back to the period that I lived in Albuquerque, and out there we didn't have much in the way of fleas and things. But uh, he he recommends if you get them real bad, there's some kind of dip. And I'll try to remember to ask him on his show tomorrow a little bit more about stick-type fleas. But uh, to answer your question, I, I don't know anything better than DE. and It just doesn't have any negatives to it. And uh, uh, it's safe for people, safe for pets. The warnings that they put on it, um, I, they just, you know, people that, that regulate that sort of thing aren't, aren't real smart, I think, because the warnings are for... Uh, it's dangerous to breathe the kind of DE that they put in swimming pool filters and things because it's been heat treated, which does something we call siliconizing it. It makes it dangerous to breathe, and they, you know, wear say wear a mask and all that sort of stuff. The uh, food grade DE, the horticultural DE, that's what you're using and what we use for so many things. Um, it's it's totally harmless. It's it's not going to cause you any problems, and you know I wouldn't intentionally breathe any amount of it but it's not like you have to put on a hazmat suit like you'd think after reading some of the instructions well i've always mixed de with the chicken feed to help keep down their parasites and stuff absolutely absolutely uh, the internal ones yep. i was kind of hoping something like the puppy dogs i think it's the spinosad in the yep. in the tree to keep the fleas i was hoping for something or if i could make my own type thing to keep them down uh, red flowers where you make a little garlic with the food. The fleas don't like the mm-hmm. garlic and stuff, and they'll go. So I'm not sure. I'm going to try the garlic today. Well, the I, the first thing I do when I come in in the mornings is I I have to download uh, the what we call the log that tells me what commercials I need to do and all. And I always do Saturday and Sunday. So I'm making a note right here above Sunday to ask Doctor Kirby about uh, fleas on chickens. So I'll get an answer for you there tomorrow morning from the from the vent that knows. 
And one thing kind of went nuclear, the poor birds, but they're all around their neck and, and stuff. So I got a little solution of Dawn soap and uh-huh. nuclear on them and stuff. The only problem is when they die, they're still there. Yeah. So you don't know if you got a whole bunch of live ones or a whole bunch of dead ones. Yeah. Well, it's it's probably one of the best things you can do. I suspect, and I'll certainly check this out with Dr. Kirby, that um, you could uh, put a little bit of soap. In fact, you could, I mean, a little bit of spinosad. You could probably just use that spinosad soap instead of just Dawn to uh, work in around under their feathers and things because uh, um, that ought to work pretty well and you get the you get the double benefits you get a, a soap that'll work against them and you get the spinosad that'll work against them both but uh let me check that out with dan tomorrow and uh, see what he has to say but uh you know spinosad is based on a naturally occurring uh product and so far as i know it's pretty much non-toxic to anything except the insects that it works pretty well against. I've heard different stories, but the most credible one seems to be that uh, it was first found in a rum distillery of all places, uh, somewhere in the Caribbean. And uh, anyway, you just uh, some of these things. You, <laughs> it nature nature produces a lot of interesting material out there for us, and. Uh, uh, it just takes us a while sometimes to get smart enough to figure out how to use it. Now, I found some DE mixed with sodium bentonite. What in the world is that for, and what does it do? I can't imagine why they would mix it with bentonite. Bentonite is uh, a very fine material that is used. The main thing it's used for, as far as I know, is sealing stock tanks like if you've got uh if you if you don't have a good you know clay base that you can put uh people put down bentonite uh, they actually it's it's kind of like a cement like product that they uh you know put to seal the bottoms of stock ponds and things and i know the the folks involved in law enforcement worry a little bit about it because it's so fine that there was talk um at one point that they were worried back when we were having the anthrax scares and things like that from a terrorism perspective that that would be the thing that they would mix their toxin with to uh, aerosolize it and you know put it in subway tunnels and things like that so i can't imagine why they would mix bentonite um in with that that's uh, that's beyond me i uh, again I'll, I'll ask dr kirby but i've i've, I've never heard of bentonite being used in that form yeah that was that kind of shocked me now on a totally different subject my last surviving avocado tree i had uh, one of the stems get a little black spot like it something stung it but you know i don't nothing stung it and it slowly encapsulated the entire stem and everything above that stem died then lo and behold the same thing happened much lower up probably about a foot from the root ball I went and crushed a clove of garlic and just rubbed it all over that, and it never spread. Now that's interesting. Garlic, of course, is known to be a very strong stimulant for natural beneficial fungi. So that tells me that the problem you're looking at probably was fungal of some sort. And um, 
and the way garlic usually works, I don't know that garlic works against a fungus, but from what uh, Dr. Ingham said when we took her course was it stimulates so many beneficial fungi that it crowds out the bad ones. But bottom line is it works, so keep it handy and use it next time you see anything like that show up. I probably just make a, gar- a strong garlic tea and spray the whole thing down. So it's, That certainly wouldn't hurt anything. Okay, well, I appreciate your time. Hey, it's always good to hear from you, Clint. You get out and have a good weekend, uh, showing us a chance of rain, more rain toward the end of next week. So uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that this uh, weather pattern may be changing a little bit and uh, to the benefit of uh, the farmers, ranchers, and gardeners out there. So you keep your fingers crossed as well. Most definitely. Take care. You too. Appreciate the call. All right, next in line is Sandy. Then it'll be Victoria. Good morning, Sandy. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I called you last Saturday because I'm the one that had the chemical company show up right. when I wasn't home and right. contaminated my yard. So um, I didn't get a chance to finish the conversation. You mentioned um, spraying the finely powdered charcoal on the yard, and I was trying to figure out um, how uh, how do I dilute that, and then do I apply it with a hose-in sprayer and how much and all that? Um, the you need to find the really finely powdered charcoal. Uh, they sometimes call it atomized, or um, I know Stuart Frankie uses a machine uh, that they they call it micronizing with some of the products that he uses it for. And um, so the 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 first thing is to find a very finely powdered form. Uh, I know that there are companies that produce it. I had a long talk with them both at the uh, Adams Trade Show and at TNLA this year. So you may have to Google it to find it in a in a very fine form. And it doesn't dissolve, of course, but if you get the fine form, it does go into suspension, if not into solution. So you can put it out with a hose-in sprayer or with a pump-up sprayer, with any kind of sprayer. You just have to keep shaking it, just have to keep agitating it to keep it mixed in. I would probably figure on using, oh golly, maybe a tablespoon per gallon. And um, like I say, you can put it out with a hose-in sprayer. You want to take, uh, you know, the, the your, your hose-in sprayer has the top that does the mixing and then screws onto that jar that you put your liquid in, and there's a little rubber hose goes down they call the uptake tube it usually has a filter on the bottom of it some of them actually have a little very fine screen mesh Uh, some of them just have kind of a wire coil but you want to take that filter off the bottom because you want the charcoal to be you know sucked up through the tube uh, and you know and sprayed out but the finely powdered uh, charcoal or uh, biochars with the name you may buy it under um, it, it will go out through a hose-in sprayer, and that's by far the best method for covering a larger area like an entire yard. I'd probably do it and then repeat it in a couple of weeks. So set it set it at one tablespoon per gallon? Yes, and if that seems to be too thick to go through your sprayer well, uh, just uh, you know use twice as much water and set it for two tablespoons per gallon. Um, 
it's and and that would that would be that would apply to a pump up sprayer hose and sprayer i don't think you'll have any problem setting it uh for one tablespoon per gallon yeah the area is really too big to practically do it with a pump up sprayer i'd be out there for a long time okay and then you mentioned um spraying it with the garret juice um, mix and yeah. um, add a little extra how, molasses to it, right? And then how how much? What, how do I um, do that with the hose and sprayer as well? I I would set it spoon? for yeah. I would set it for an ounce per gallon, which of course is two tablespoons per gallon. Okay, two tablespoons per gallon, and um, and I just put the solid uh, Garrett juice. I mean, not the solid, but I put the pour the Garrett juice right out of the container into yeah. my well, sprayer. Yeah, do that, and um, and, and I would to that. I'd probably add a couple of tablespoons of molasses. Now, this is one of those things that if uh, if that seems to be too thick to go through your sprayer well, uh, just mix it half and half with water before you put it in the sprayer, and then spray your set your sprayer for two tablespoons per gallon, and you'll be getting exactly the same dilution. But uh, I would do that every couple of weeks for probably the next couple of months. And um, how much do I spray, you know, because it, it's a big yard, so... I just spray it around random, you know, my just, out there. Yeah, enough to enough to wet the surface. Um, okay. That's what this uh, these bums did that that brought the toxic material into your yard. And um, of course, we have had some rain since then, so a bit of it's washed into the soil. But you just yeah. put a good coating of it on the surface, and then if we get a little rain the end of next week, then. Uh, you know, you'll be carrying your your material down, which stimulates the microbes, which are going to break down the toxic materials. And uh, do you recommend, once I get done with all of that, that it would be good to put on some uh, manure compost, too? Uh, that would know. be good, you know, at any time, because that's going to bring in the greatest diversity and the largest number of microbes and then you're spraying your garret juice molasses which is going to be a strong stimulant to those and uh um you know it's it just kicks up the microbial activity if you want to use a little bit of medina's product what they call their soil activator or their medina plus make a spraying or two of that uh he adds some more things and i don't know what he adds but uh Medina has worked worldwide in uh, cleaning up oil spills, bioremediating various things. Uh, they've used the same kind of technology uh, to clean up a horrible chemical spill in China. They cleaned up, uh, you know, a toxic environmental waste in uh, in uh, one of the one of the old Eastern Bloc countries. So this technology works very well. So you said Medina Plus. Medina Plus is just uh, their Medina soil activator with a little extra seaweed added to it. Um, your molasses, oh, okay. your your molasses, your Garrett juice, uh, those are going to be a real good starting point. But uh, um, wouldn't hurt to kick in, you know, another group of microbes or something that'll stimulate uh, still another group of microbes. So you might use the Garrett juice mix one week and then uh, maybe the Medina Plus uh, a couple of weeks later. 
Okay, I wasn't sure if you said Medina Plus or Medina Soil Activator. Which well, one? they're they're one and the same. The Medina Plus oh. is just a little better stuff. They they took the Medina Soil Activator, which is what the company was originally founded around, and uh, said, well, gosh, we can make it better if we added uh, uh, some liquid seaweed to it. And so they simply started calling that Medina Plus, which basically stands for Soil Activator Plus Seaweed. So... Um, either either one's good. The plus is just a little better. You get a little bit more. All righty. Thanks very much. Got my work cut out for me. Well, and and do go to dirtdoctor.com and uh, check out uh, what he calls the detox program. I don't know if you heard Howard and I were talking a little bit about your problem before. And, you know, it's just, uh, to me, it's just criminal. These companies that do that have to be held liable because if they, if they get away with it without having to, face some consequences it doesn't give much incentive not to do it again so uh hope you can insist that they pick up the tab and uh anyway i will do what we can but i appreciate your advice on what i can do in the meantime well want to keep you safe out there (laughs) not enough good no we can never have too many good gardeners in the world sandy and you're one of them so (laughs) keep a lot yeah you're sure welcome thank you take care bye you too bye all right, moving right down the list. Victoria is next. Good morning, Victoria. Hi, Bob. Um, I just have a question. Um, I have what seems to be a probably an 80-foot red oak. looks mm-hmm. really healthy. Uh, the root flare wasn't exposed, um, and I exposed that over a year ago. However, about a month ago, I found mushrooms. I think they're, it's called... Hand of the woods, kind of at okay. the base. So I'm just wondering, is the tree in decline, even though it looks very healthy? Mushrooms um, are a fungus which grows on, or there are many different fungi, which grow on decaying organic material. Are these uh, sprouting up in the soil around the base of the tree, or is this one that is actually growing on the trunk of the tree? It's more... Um, at the base of the tree, and yeah. there, there was three large ones, and one of them was probably a good two feet away from the tree. Yeah, and I have been adding a little bit of. Um, um, I put Super Thrive on it, and uh-huh. and then uh, a little bit of um, Black Cow. Yeah, and, yeah. and well, um, so I, I don't sus- know if that's part of it. Yeah, I suspect you're just seeing. Uh, the the mushrooms, like I say, grow on decaying things. We normally see this where there's been a tree removed or something like that, and then a couple of years later, you just see lines of mushrooms coming up out in the yard where the old roots were because the the fungus works to break down dead tissue, and then when the fungus decides to reproduce, that's what this mushroom cap that you see, or toadstool, or whatever you want to call it, that's the reproductive structure. In between the gills that are on the bottom of that cap, uh, that's where the spores form. And this is just a natural occurrence, either when you have a lot of organic material in the soil, or where you've had some dead roots. I, the, the types of fungi that they call shelf fungus that actually grows out of the side of the bark of a tree, that's a sign you've got some damage uh, damaged wood in there, that would be a little bit more cause for concern. I think you're just seeing a normal thing when you have a lot of organic material in your soil. And uh, if you want to suppress them, just get a little dusting sulfur and sprinkle around 
Uh, that'll that'll knock them out pretty completely, but I don't think they're anything harmful. I don't think they're causing any damage to your tree. Now, we're seeing a lot of red oaks that had some pretty severe drought damage, and gosh, every time I'm out driving around town, I, I see some big red oaks that are in trouble, but I see a lot of them that are very healthy, that are thriving. see some of them that are kind of in between, where we've just got a dead branch or two here. But uh, this this drought and this heat following you know the really cold winters the red oaks have taken it pretty hard but it sounds like you've got a good healthy tree uh, what you're describing would not be any cause for concern to me okay she she does she does look very 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 healthy <laughs> okay thank you bob you have a great morning well you do the same victoria really appreciate the call thank you Thank you. Certainly. Bye. Um, Yeah, there are, oh, we're still seeing lots, lots and lots of residual damage. A lot of trees and things that were so damaged by the drought and the intense heat this summer. And for some reason, red oaks are among the ones that seem to have suffered the most. Occasionally see a whole tree that appears dead, but uh, more often it's just big limbs here and there within the within the canopy so hopefully we're going to get back into a little bit more typical weather and that'll be less of a problem let me remind you again about some of the fun events happening nature fest taking place just google that or google green spaces alliance and uh you'll see all about it it's a real family friendly event that takes place i believe it's uh mission county park on the down on the south side uh, of town and this is a big event family friendly lots of fun be a great thing to do this morning going to be a beautiful morning to be out in nature but uh, that goes on the castle lake fire department which is up uh, between i guess you'd say between pipe creek and bandera they're having their turkey shoot this morning and no they're not really shooting turkeys but uh, it's a fun fundraising event and uh, that goes on this morning this evening the candelia volunteer fire department is having their big uh, Mexican food supper, and let me tell you, <laughs> it's a lot of very, very good food. Uh, it starts at 5.30, I believe is when they'll start serving, and then a little bit later they have a silent auction and a live auction, raffle, things like that. Just a good event to support the men and women that keep it safe. Next weekend, it'll be the Sister Day of Volunteer Fire Departments and the Hangar Dance. be talking about that a little bit later on the show. You're listening to Gardening here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Garden with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. Looks like it's going to be Cindy and Rosa and Michael. That's we leaves one line open. So if you'd like to grab it, you know the number 210-599-5555. Let's just keep going with phone calls. Cindy is next in line. Good morning, Cindy. Is Cindy there? Uh, she was. I don't know where she's at. <laughs> okay. Well, let's put Cindy back on hold, and uh, we'll check back with her in a second, and we'll talk to Rosa in the meantime. Good morning, Rosa. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to ask you about some Bermuda grass. We went to the Botanical Gardens, and they have this grass that I don't think grows tall. Uh-huh. It must just kind of hug the ground, but I think right. it's a Bermuda, but what kind is that? It? it is called TIFF, T-I-F-F, 
Uh, there's several different forms of TIF Bermuda. There's TIF Green, TIF Way, TIF 419. Um, it's a grass they use on golf greens, use on golf courses, so you know it'll stand up to a lot of foot traffic, and you're absolutely right. Now, where they, on their golf greens and things, they mow it every day to keep it down super short and super smooth, but um, it's it's an excellent grass, and you don't have to keep it mowed that short. If you don't mow it at all, it doesn't get more than about two or three inches tall. It does need a sunny spot, like all Bermudas. It's, uh, it's a real sun lover, but even hot, dry summers like this, the TIF Bermudas came through just fine. Uh, the one negative is that you can't plant it from seed. Uh, you have to do it like you do St. Augustine. You have to get, you know, squares of it. Uh, you can cut up little plugs and put them around, or you can put it down solid. But uh, what you're looking at is indeed a form of Bermuda called TIF Bermuda. And as long as you have the sun, it's a wonderful grass. So where would I get it? Uh, any company that sells grass uh, is going to have it. Uh, um, the company I recommend most often, they're not perfect, but um, they're up in Bulverde. They have a uh, uh, an outlet near Redland Road in 1604 here in San Antonio. It's called Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. Uh, uh, Bill Thomas, I believe, is the fellow that owns it. But Thomas Stone and Landscape, you might give them a call and see uh, how their supply is. You'll, you want to get it planted before we start having a lot of uh, heavy frost and things like that. Is I wouldn't plant it in the middle of the winter, but you've got time to plant it now, or you can plant it in the spring when it starts to warm up. Okay, and one more thing. I have this small patio that I want to enclose because, I had so many plants, they didn't fit in my storeroom anymore. <laughs> so, I know so the I feeling. Wanted, oh, so I wanted to know what kind of plastic would I put around there? Is this something you want to just put up for the fall and then take down when it warms up in the spring? Well, if it'll stay up longer, it would be great, but if not, okay. Then. Well, if you want just, you know, the cheapest, easiest thing that'll last one season, uh, any good hardware store, lumberyard, uh, even the home center stores, they will have uh, four mil that's just clear polyethylene plastic. If you want a little bit better grade, which is a little heavier duty, there is a six mil plastic uh, that has a built-in uh, ultraviolet uh, inhibitor, so to speak, that makes it last up to three years. And, you know, I think that's what Fanic Nursery has, that they sell by the foot over there, so you only have to buy as uh, much as you need. And uh, Fanic's is, a, you know, they're a big, probably the oldest nursery in San Antonio. They're over on the south sea, southeast side over on Home Green Street. And uh, I'd probably just go by, talk to Mark or Mike, figure out how much you need, and I believe they have it in more than one width, and like I say, you don't have to buy a whole roll of it. You just need 10 feet of it. You just buy 10 feet of it. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's it. Let me see. I think that's all. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Hey, well, you do the same, and I uh, appreciate you call this morning, Rosa. And tell Mike and Mark I said hello when you go over there. They're good people. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You're sure welcome. Goodbye. Uh, Jimmy, did we get Cindy back? Nope, we did not. We're on to Michael. Okay, on to Michael. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Mr. Webster. How are you? 
Well, I always say Mr. Webster was my father. It makes me too old, feel too old, people to call me Mr. So Bob's just fine, but ah, it's going to be another gorgeous day out there, just like yesterday was. Yes, it is. Hey, I have a question for you. The lady who called about her red oak, uh-huh. she said she had uh, that uh, fungus problem in of the woods growing on her red oak. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that wasn't a term that I'm familiar with, but uh, uh, as I understood it, it was growing out around the base, not really on the wood of the tree, but coming out of the soil around the base, which is kind of typical when you put down on any kind of good organic compost because all the wood in your in your mulches, all the wood in your compost is it's decomposed by different well by a lot of different things, bacterial and fungal. But uh, that's how this group. Oh, you're taking me way back to a college course in uh, plant. Oh golly, what was it? Uh, not physiology, but plant taxonomy. And I think it's a group of fungi generally called the Pisidiomycetes. And uh, they're the ones that make the things like the mushrooms and all. But uh, they just grow not on plants, but on decaying organic material in the soil. And as I understood her, that's what she was talking about. So uh, I'm a pretty active forager. Uh, uh-huh. And hen of the woods is a delicacy, but it's not very common here. No, and I don't I... know if she's from if she's calling from san antonio or like which area because man i'll go over to her house and I'll, that, I'll take care of that for her yes i you know the way we're set up these days my engineer back yeah. at the station can see the area code that is calling from but i can't i got the idea that she was here in san antonio and i think she's probably just getting that information off the internet or something like that which is the absolute worst source of anything especially if you're considering dining upon it but uh i i i do not know of any edible um, fungi that I would feel comfortable <laughs> looking around in somebody's yard for. I think we better just leave it at that. But I, I doubt that uh, she has the delicacy that you're looking for. Well, I don't know. The, there's aren't many lookalikes, you know, for mm-hmm. Hen of the Woods. And so I was just curious when she said that, that, I mean, it's not very common here, but with the rains and the really cool weather that we've had, it's not Mm -hmm. impossible. So from a mycological standpoint. Well, maybe uh, maybe she'll, she's probably still listening, maybe she'll call back and uh, give my engineer a little more information about what part of town she's in and... uh, um, <laughs> we will try to learn a little bit more about it. I, I, you know, there there are many fungi that I enjoy dining upon, but none of them that I'm confident enough to go collect my own out in the wild. But uh, I really admire those of you guys that uh, that know that much about them. And uh, like I say, they're real delicacy. I have to admit, one time I was visiting friends up in Wyoming, and uh, one of the fellows they they uh, had over for dinner was one that had gone out and collected some. This is up in the Rockies, and uh, and they were quite delicious. That's like chanterelles over in East Texas. Right, right. Um, we were, look, we were looking at buying some land over there, and there's this creek bottom, and I just noticed this beautiful orange and reddish <laughs> carpet of uh-huh. chanterelles. And I'm like, I mean, I was going to buy the land just because it had such a <laughs> robust 
my wife's like, that's not a good business decision. Just uh, well, but you know, if you can afford it, it's a great way to preserve a real natural treasure because. Uh, uh, that's the kind of thing a developer just go in there with a bulldozer and it'd be gone forever. So uh, buy the land, put it under conservation easement, which will save you a lot of money on your personal income tax, and uh, and do your part to help you know the world be a better place fifty or hundred years from now. Well, when I can find a hundred acres for that, that's what I'm looking for to do. You know exactly that. <laughs> Well, that's your, I, I certainly admire your ambition and your knowledge, and, uh, and keep up with me. Let me let me know how you make progress on that. And in the meantime, if uh, uh, she calls back, we'll get a little bit more information from her. Yeah, I'm really curious just, just to know which area of San Antonio, like north, south, east, west, whatever, you know. Well, she calls. If she calls back, uh, she'll tell Jimmy, and Jimmy will tell me, and I will put it on the air. So uh, we'll look forward to sharing as best we can. I'll try to be listening. I'm about to go hunting, so it, you know the season opens today. Is it so. today? Oh, that's right. This is Saturday. Yep. That's uh, yeah. Be careful out there. And I tell you what, it's amazing to me. I don't know where you're going to hunt, uh, but I'm seeing. Considering this dry, really bad year, I've seen the, some of the biggest antlers that I've I've ever seen on hill country deer. And I was talking to a, a fellow rancher and friend up there, and I said, yeah, these look like South Texas deer we're seeing up here. And he said, that's funny. That's the same thing he said. So uh, I'm afraid I'll admit to being a meat hunter. I'd, I'd got to where I'd rather shoot a fat doe. <laughs> he can't eat those antlers, well, but... Uh, they're they're anyway. I like, to, the, I yeah. like to I like just to get the fat does, but there's a incredible mast this year, mm-hmm. and I don't yep. understand it either with the dry weather. But well, I I can out there for the deer. I, I can tell you why it is, and the drought. Anything that stresses a plant, uh, the plant's internal chemistry says, "Hey, this is bad. We may die. We better." produce and leave a bunch of acorns behind in case we're not here next year and so this is why we're seeing such a heavy heavy acorn crop it's just the stress that uh, nature has put on the trees and uh, putting on an extra heavy crop of seeds in just about any plant is what will result when you get this much stress now hopefully we're going to go back into wetter weather and the trees are going to survive and do well but uh, it is an incredible acorn crop and it's interesting to me you're obviously a naturalist as well but uh, some of the trees around my ranch have put on an extraordinary number of very small acorns other trees are putting on maybe it's not as many acorns, but, you know, twice the normal size. Now, one thing that's going to be interesting, my pecans are very heavily loaded with nuts. I'm going to be surprised if they're really filled out, but none of them are coming out of the shucks yet. But uh, um, the deer, the body condition of the deer, both uh, does and bucks, and uh, even even some of this year's crops of fawns, I'm not seeing many ribs. I'm seeing a lot of healthy deer out there and uh, and healthy turkeys, too. So, anyway, it's been hey, a Jim, good year for wildlife. I, I got an answer. Victoria called back. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't know. Are, are you on the air, Jimmy, or I'm, I'm talking back yeah, to the Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, and, I'm on the air. Michael, you can okay. hear me, right? Yes, sir. Okay. She still has the San Antonio area code, but she lives in Bella Vista, Arkansas. So that might be your answer why she has the mushrooms. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, tell her, 
tell her how much we appreciate her calling back, uh, Jimmy. That's uh, very, very thoughtful of her and uh, very informative as well. Awesome. Hey, listen, you have a blessed day and uh, keep spreading the word, okay? And you get out there and commune with nature and uh, good luck with your hunting this morning. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm going to go take a nap. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the truth. I got to the point uh, that I just, I'd sit out there in the blind, big fat deer would walk out, and I'd pull down on it. And I'd think, you know, if you squeeze that trigger, you're going to have about four hours of skinning and cutting up and putting in the freezer and all that. And I got to the point, I just put the safety back on and said, well, it's just going to be good morning to sit out here, and uh, we'll do it another day. So <laughs> get out and enjoy whatever you do. Do it safely. Thank you, sir. You're sure welcome. Thank you. i got to get a break in here, getting a little behind. Don't want to do that. I want to talk about Fanix, though, and they're actually having an event this morning. They're having one of their seminars, as they so often do, and uh, this is a fall is for planting seminar, and, you know, it is true that uh, October, November, best months of the year to do your landscape planting, whether it's trees or shrubs. Now, obviously, there's some warm weather things we're not going to plant at this time of year. But anyway, Fanix is having a, a seminar addressing that subject this morning. Free of charge. First 20 people get a gift bag, but uh, get there early if you want the best seats. If you want complete information, go to their website at F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. And uh, anyway, that goes on this morning. They also want me to remind you that they have greenhouses, little pop-up and permanent greenhouses as well, selling greenhouse plastic by the foot along with insulate. And another special thing this weekend, they've got strawberries. Chandler, I believe, is a variety for 80 cents a plant. That's a great price, and this is the best time of year to plant strawberries. So many people wait till spring. I'm uh, not going to get nearly as many berries as, as if you set them out in the fall, then Fanix is there for you. Garlic by the pound, all kinds of veggies need to get over to Fanix. Over on Home Green Road, where they've been for about 90 years now. And like I say, for more information, check out their website at Fanick, Fanick, Fanick com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like we've got Carlos and Angel are my next two callers. Let's just get right back to the phone lines. Good morning, Carlos. Good morning, Bob. I have a Good question. Uh, I live over on the southeast side, just south of Galavetas Lake. Okay. I have sandy soil. It's very sandy. Mm-hmm. I've been out there 17 years, and I've been amending my soil uh, throughout the years with uh chips from friends who have tree services mm-hmm. but there's been a long pause and i can see that the the microbes or something in the sand is overtaking all the work that i did and i've got another area where my wife gardens where i've been experimenting and i just want to know if i'm tracking along correctly i've been on the dirtdoctor.com and uh i don't ever see anything specifically to my situation address but I've been amending a little bit with bentonite, trying to mm-hmm. use uh, compost, uh, using some sandy loam, and spreading wood chips there. Uh, is there any way to get ahead of the sand consuming all the work that I've done trying to amend and create well, a good, fertile yeah. soil? What you what you really want to do is, of course, is build up the microbial life in the soil, 
uh, primarily bacterial life, uh, bacteria, certain bacteria, which uh, is what you're encouraging, actually change the soil structure. They produce a glue-like material. Uh, they call it sticky substance, a highly technical term. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> okay. it uh, and they, they basically glue the clay particles in and sand particles into sort of an open honeycomb web, which allows plenty of moisture, plenty of oxygen, and great place for roots to grow. So when you're using raw carbon, which is basically what you're getting in leaf chi- leaf clippings, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, tree material and things like that, you want to be sure you keep it on the surface, just like Mother Nature would, because if you blend it into the soil, then you're stealing the nutrients from the soil. The microbes are to, you know, break the material down. When you leave your wood chips up on the surface, they're able to take their nitrogen, take the things they need from the air. So, uh, old Malcolm Beck used to always tell us, just try to recreate the forest floor. If you go yes, out sir. in the woods somewhere, then you'll, the closer you get to your sandy soil, uh, you're going to have, first of all, you're going to have a lot of fairly well broken down material, which is really enriching the soil. Then you're going to get up to where it's more like a mulch, and then eventually up on top, you're getting the fresh leaves and everything that has just come down on top of it. So um, you're you're building your soil properly, but those wood chips and things, be sure they stay up on the surface until they're well broken down. Uh, if you want to speed up the soil building process, you simply spray the soil with things that will encourage the microbes. Uh, cheapest and easiest probably is just to get agricultural molasses. And uh, I have molasses feed, uh, molasses lick feeder out for my cows. And uh, I just, when the, my guy comes around to fill it up, I can just leave a few five-gallon containers out there and say, hey, I need extra molasses, and it's pretty darn cheap. You can go to a, not necessarily a feed store, but if you have anybody in your area that uh, actually produces feed, uh, cattle feed and things like that, they'll probably sell you bulk molasses uh, inexpensively. If you're looking to buy it uh, in something more than a five-gallon jug, you can actually talk to Stuart over at Medina Agriculture, and I'm sure he would sell you you know, a carboy of it. If you, you know, wanted 250 gallons, they also, you know, will package it in five gallon containers. So, uh, things that build the soil, uh, are, are, that's what you're looking for. Uh, Medina, of course, built their company around what they call soil activator, uh, and then they improved what they call Medina Plus. Uh, those are products that you could also get from Medina in, in whatever quantity you want. And it, bottom line is you want to be putting out things that are going to build the microbial life, and then the microbial life is going to be what's going to build your good fertile soil with good texture so it holds the moisture but retains that openness to it where you get lots of oxygen into the soil. And once you get that going, your soil is just going to get better and better over time. But uh, starting with pure sand, you know, you've got a ways to go, just like the folks sitting on pure clay. But in both cases, you're doing the same thing. You're building the microbial life in the soil, and that's what you do with things like molasses, like Medina Plus. And then you're just adding more raw organic material to the surface and letting it decompose naturally. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I, I'm I'm not a, a a believer in tilling into the soil. I'm right. trying to create that 
ecosystem on my five acres in uh mm-hmm. i live along an oak belt and uh where the canopy is thickest it does resemble a forest floor yeah so bringing that up into my my front acreage uh it's been a challenge with all the rain uh <laughs> kind of washed away a bunch of what i built right. but it it deposited somewhere else further mm-hmm. down which right. is fine uh i'm glad that uh i am doing some stuff uh right uh, now, um, I'm also trying to plant large trees, medium trees, shrubs, and then smaller plants uh, to complement that, to try and uh, coincide with the the way the sun sets and the hottest part of the day, the tallest trees casting shade on the medium, sure. uh, the small. So I'm trying to do that as well, and retirement will afford me more time. <laughs> so I am looking forward to that. I wanted to mention one last thing. Uh, something that a friend of mine is a big hunter. Uh, me, I just I feed the deer until I I feel I need to eat them at some point. But right. they, his family bought him a video camera, uh-huh. and he said two seasons in a row he never picked up his rifle. He instead he said he wanted to capture in video the ones that didn't uh-huh. get away, but he chose to let them walk away to preserve the genetic sure. material sure. for. Uh, the generations that come. So I thought that was pretty funny. But uh, I appreciate your show, Bob. Uh, I love listening to you, and thank you for the education. Well, it's always a pleasure. And, yeah, I I gave up hunting. You know, when I can sit on my front porch and see 30 deer in the field, uh, it's not a lot of sport to it. But uh, hunting, I guess the biggest disagreement I have with a lot of hunters is, uh, you know, don't go out and shoot the biggest and the best. Let them be out there to breed. But, if I if I at least land out and I don't, I would require people to shoot three door, does before they could even think about shooting a buck because the hill country is overrun. We need we need somebody, we need people, we need whatever to really reduce the population of deer. I had a oh a biologist tell me one time that uh, that they felt that the healthy carrying capacity of the area where I'm in was about six hundred thousand deer, and we currently have twelve million. So I'm all in favor of humane hunting. Don't get me wrong there. I just, I, I'm like you. I'd, I'd rather take pictures of them and just sit there and enjoy them and the wild turkeys and things too. But I, I have no problem with hunting if it's done properly because we really, since we've eliminated all the natural predators, uh, um, it's, it's something we need to do. So anyway, listen, I appreciate your sentiments as well. So, uh, Hope you have a wonderful weekend, and I'll look forward to visiting again, Carlos. Thank you. Uh, let's Thank see. You. I need to get a break in here, certainly. Uh, Angel will be up next. Looks like I get to talk about uh, the freeze miser. Once again, we had our first taste of freezing weather this past week, if you live up in the hill country. And let me tell you, I am so impressed with this little device called the freeze miser. This will be the third winter I've had them on my hydrants. They're very simple. They don't have batteries or wires or anything like that, but some absolutely amazing chemistry inside of this little device. And what you do, you screw it onto the hydrants that you want to protect. In my case, it involves my well as well as my uh, outdoor hydrants. Screw it on and turn the water on. Nothing happens. No water comes out. doesn't waste water. But when the temperature of the water inside the pipes drops down into the 30s where you're in danger of having it freeze and break pipes, well, the freeze miser automatically starts dripping. 
drips just enough to keep the pipes from freezing, and then when it warms up, it stops dripping once again. You can put them on in the fall, leave them on all winter long. Think what a great thing that would be at your fishing shack down by the coast or your hunting place up in the hill country, so you're not running up there in a panic trying to drip the hydrants when an unexpected freeze is predicted. Freezemizers really do work. You can find them not at box stores. They deal with independent merchants, uh, hardware stores, good nurseries, places like that. You can always look at them. In fact, you can order them online if you'd like. But if you want to see exactly how they work, simply go to freezemizer.com. They work, and winter's coming, so I'm going to have them on my hydrants. I suggest you do the same. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. My next two callers are Angel and David. A couple of open lines. Grab one if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Angel's next in line. Good morning, Angel. Yes, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I got some questions uh, about protecting some trees uh, for the for you know for the next cold snap. Uh, uh-huh. I ordered I ordered some bottle palms online, and they're doing fine. But uh, I paid a pretty good little amount of money for them, and I would really hate to see them get damaged uh, by you know by by cold weather. So right, what would be your advice to protect those uh, when the freeze comes? How long to leave the covering on and all that good stuff? I built a giant greenhouse over them. <laughs> now, bottle palms are really <laughs> interesting, um, and unfortunately, they're not cold-hardy at all. The thing to remember is that in that type of palm, as in you know a lot of kinds of palms, the only point that is really alive, producing new fronds and new growth, is right up there where where you first see those new fronds coming out. Uh, if that freezes, then the then the palm's gone. It doesn't branch or grow from the base. There are a handful of palms like the uh, what they call Mediterranean fan palms, the date palms that can branch and produce no gro- new growth from the base, but. Uh, the bottle palm, you not only need to protect that broadened trunk at the base, but you need to go up as least, at least as high as the point where the, you know, the new fronds tend to emerge. And, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep it warm. You've got to keep it wrapped. Um, hopefully we're not going to see weather like we had in, uh, 21, where we were down some areas down to the single digits because, there, you had to wrap them several layers thick uh, to protect them. And, you know, keep in mind, the thing that that protects is is not necessarily what kind of, uh, well, I, the thing that gives you insulation is something that traps air. Uh, that's why down is such a good insulator. It's not that it's not the goose feathers it's it's the air that it traps so you could wrap with burlap you could wrap uh, my favorite material is this material called insulate which is a white fabric the benefit of it is that uh, you can leave it on it still gets enough light through it to continue photosynthesis so we've wrapped tropical vines and things and just left it on all winter but uh, bottle palm can grow into a pretty big sized uh, 
you know, pretty big tree, so you're going to have some work ahead of you. And if you're using one of the thin materials like insulate, kind of judge what the weather's going to be. One layer will give you about five, six, seven degrees protection. Uh, if it's going to get colder than that, you're probably going to have to put multiple layers around. Now, one other thing you can do, you've waited a little late to do it, but start spraying, and next year start spraying earlier with liquid seaweed. Spray the foliage on your bottle palm. Liquid seaweed builds up the sugars inside of the sap, which serves as sort of a natural antifreeze. And uh, start out, if you start out several weeks before it gets really cold, and who knows, we may have several weeks of warmer weather now, but that's the best natural thing you can do to make a plant, a palm like that, more freeze resistant. Hey, give me a minute. I'm on the phone. I'm sorry about that. Well, That's all right. <laughs> well, I, I won't tell the boss, but again. No, no, I'm fine. Go ahead, sir. But, uh, no, the natural thing you can do is spray with seaweed. I actually mix a little bit of molasses with the seaweed. My my formula is two tablespoons seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses. And spray weekly with that. That's going to give you some natural cold protection and then if we're going to get really cold uh just wrap and wrap and wrap depending on how cold the forecast is okay good deal, good deal. just remember uh, the, the the fronds can freeze and they'll put on new fronds but that little spot up in the trunk right where the fronds emerge that's the only spot that can continue to make uh make new growth so if you can't wrap the whole top of the of the palm um, don't worry, you'll lose some foliage, but it'll come back out again. That's just the point on most palms, most true palms, that you have to be sure you keep it above the freezing temperature. Okay, so basically, if I create a wrap, like using some of those, my wife has them and buys them, those those wire cones uh, mm-hmm. to help. Uh, if I if I set one of those in and then wrap it with burlap and some of that, what's that material called, insulate? It's called N, like just the letter N dash S U L A T E. Okay. But just okay, you. you know, just pretend it's it's you standing out there, and as uh, much as you would wrap yourself up uh, to protect yourself from the cold, that's what you're going to need to do to your bottle palm. Okay. Well, dude. One more question, if I could. Uh, yes, actually, sir. I got two other trees <laughs> I'm inquiring about. Uh, one's a fig. I just planted that one uh, last this past spring, and mm-hmm. it's doing wonderful. Uh, I'm trying to keep the, uh, the little critters from getting it because we got, uh, I think they're called voles. They're not moles. I think they're yep. voles, and they uh, yep. they have they have been a terror on our stuff, and we've been uh, going through a learning curve with those little critters uh, right. for the last couple of years. Uh, but this one seems to be doing okay, and, and I got it protected. Uh, basically, the same thing with the fig. Well, a fig's a little different in that a fig can freeze to the ground and come right back out. Figs are not grafted, so you don't have to worry about rootstock sprouting or things like that. I'm going to start with about six inches of mulch around the base of the tree, and that way, if the top freezes down, it'll come right back out. Uh, I've got figs that must be 100 years old, and cold winters, they freeze almost to the ground and then come right back. So if you can cover them, that's all the better. You'll get more figs more quickly next year. But um, 
Uh, mulching the base is going to be the most important thing on the figs. As far as the voles, you need some barn cats. Uh, I lived my high school years in uh, East Tennessee, and our our cats were forever bringing in voles that they, you know, caught out in the yard. So uh, they're they can be damaging little creatures. Moles, not so much. Moles eat earthworms and things like that. They don't eat right. plant material. They just they they tunnel around and they can do some damage that way, but. Voles are little insect eaters, or they're little opportunists, and they can do some damage. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, we had a cat. It passed, but he uh, he was controlling the population of them voles pretty good. Well, again, <laughs> um, time for another kitty cat. And uh, yes, um, there's, there's actually a, a good group called the Feral Cat Coalition for people who have a barn or who want an outdoor you know, sort of a woods-wise kitty cat, not somebody that's going <laughs> to, like like my big creature that wants to sleep in the softest part of the bed. But, uh, you know, barn cats serve a wonderful person or a wonderful purpose uh, out there, and uh, that's that's going to be the best vole control you're going to find. Okay. So um, what was my, I was going to ask you a question. Oh, the, the fig. Do I need to trim that back? Uh, Strictly up to you. No, no. Uh, if you trim it, always do it in the early spring. And the only reason to trim it is because it's getting too big. Um, I, if you've got it planted in a place where it's got room, you can use your pruning shears only to take out the occasional dead limb or the occasional freeze damage. But unlike peaches and plums and things like that, pruning serves no purpose as far as increasing fruit production. Okay, but just to make it. Uh... To make it, you know, keep it small where, where it's, uh, it's convenient to pick the fruit. I mean, I don't want to be getting on the ladder. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, I kind of figure the, the high ones, I'll let the birds have those and the low ones I will get. But no, if you want to prune it periodically just to shape it, go right ahead. If you want a dwarf fig that never gets huge, uh, there's a new variety out there called, little play on words, Little Miss Figgy. And uh, uh, it's a good variety and produces a good edible fig, but doesn't ever get over, you know, four or five feet tall. So uh, that's a fun thing. You can grow in a pot. Of course, in a pot, you worry a little bit more about freezing. But if you're looking for a really compact fig, that's that's a good one to look at. Okay. And one last question, Bob, if I can squeeze it in. It's about an oak that was given to my wife yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. The city of Ingleside, uh, I've seen it on the news yesterday morning where they were giving away trees for mm-hmm. I guess yesterday was Arbor Day and uh, she went up there and was given an oak and it's probably about two foot tall uh, in a pot and I'm planning on, I want to plant it obviously, I want to know mm-hmm. when and what can I do to protect that in the winter sir? Do you know what kind of oak it is? Is it a live oak or what type? I believe it's a live oak but I'm not okay. sure Plant it this afternoon, put it in a good sunny spot, and uh, uh, dig a square hole. Don't do any soil improvement. Just put the soil you take out of the hole back around it. Mulch it, water it thoroughly. In fact, I'd water it before you plant it, and uh, you'll be looking at a nice shade tree a few years from now. Okay. What about protecting it from the cold? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No, it's... uh, um, and, and it looks like, you know, we're going to have a little time before we're back to hard freezes and, uh, it'll give it plenty of time to harden off. But, uh, 
the oaks will stand up to temperatures, live oaks will go down close to zero. As long as the soil isn't too dry, they'll be just fine. So if it gets colder than that, we'll have some other things to worry about. Okay. Do I need to add a lot of water to these before a good freeze? Uh, oh, all all plants are, are better well watered before freezing weather occurs. Okay. Once the temperature's not below freezing, stop watering. But uh, having having the soil well watered before freeze hits is uh, going to be, benefit every plant out there. Sounds good, sir. Thank you very much for your information. We love Always. the show. Well, appreciate it, Angel. You guys uh, have a great weekend. And, uh, Jimmy, let me get my last break of this hour in, and then we'll talk to David and on down the list. It looks like I get to talk to you about my friends at Medina. That's another thing. Fertilizing in the fall is one of the important things you do as well because that adds a lot of winter protection. It increases the electrolyte content of the sap, which makes it less resistant to freezing, and it'll give you a better start next spring. Fertilizer isn't just taken up instantly and used by the plant. It has to be processed by the microbes in the soil. That's why fall feeding is the single most important feeding of the year. You may want to use Medina's Grow and Green, which is an easy-to-apply 100% organic granular fertilizer, or maybe one of their liquid products, one of the Hastro products, or maybe the new Liquid Fish blend just remember to do it and medina packages a great liquid seaweed that uh, if you're going to be out there spraying to increase cold hardiness and plant health they've got a great product for you their medina plus like we were talking with the caller earlier really builds microbial life in the soil improves soil texture over time medina makes so many quality products you want to see the whole list go to medinaag.com when I actually see their products, we'll go to a good nursery or place a good hardware store somewhere that sells quality natural products. You're going to see a lot of fun things from Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and let's go right straight back to the phone lines. David is next in line. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, Bob. Listen, good once morning. I figured out once I figured out how to water the ginkgo, I, I managed to get all sixty-seven leaves that it produced to have some green on them at this good. time of the year. I need Very you to good. tell me. I need you to tell me something that will cause me to believe that it's going to look something other than a dead tree standing next year. Well, it you say uh, it does have green leaves on it now. Yes, it does. Then just, you know, watch your watering. You don't want to drown it, uh, obviously. Well, just that's, give it. That's what, I did to the, that's what I did to the first one I purchased two years ago. And so this one's, this one's uh, three years ago. So this one's two years in. So that's why I, I was oh. so cautious to water it. But. Well, just be sure that root flare is exposed and just stick your finger down in the soil at the base. Let it get dry a couple of inches deep and... Uh, uh, water it when you water it, water it thoroughly. Don't worry about the winters. These things, uh, live in Tibet, <laughs> places where it gets a lot colder than we would ever think about it getting here. So, uh, winter should not be a problem to it. Now, if we stay really warm and then have a very sudden freeze, uh, that might be an issue. But if you want to use a little liquid seaweed spray on the foliage periodically, that's going to make it extra winter hardy. And uh, I, I shouldn't be a problem to you. You grow a lot of things well. Just uh, 
remember that water doesn't kill anything. Lacks of oxygen is what kills things. So, uh, and and that's when people keep things too wet. It's not the water that hurts. It's the fact that it's driven all the oxygen out of the soil. So, uh, just watch your watering. Do it thoroughly when you do it. Uh, there's no reason that ginkgo shouldn't uh, shouldn't live a hundred years for you. I I had one in another location here in San Antonio, and I actually my observation was that the colder the winter, the better the tree. Uh, (laughs) and you're probably exactly right about that plus they have beautiful fall color uh one of the prettiest yellow foliages you'll see in in any tree yeah absolutely so i question about mulch we've got Uh um in in looking at bulk at bulk mulch we're seeing some that is cedar based and some that's just a hardwood uh Uh Does the will the cedar decompose in in like flower bed garden bed or would we be better off with the, the hardwood? The cedar will decompose. The hardwood will decompose more quickly. Um, I think you know Howard Garrett and Malcolm Beck have both said it best that the best mulches come from your area. Uh, don't be getting pine bark out of East Texas unless you've got a lot of pine trees around. Uh, just good old native ground up tree trimmings, uh, which you can usually get free of charge or close to free of charge at the brush dump. Or if you know a tree trimmer, just tell them, hey, come when you're, you're, you're gonna have to pay to give that material from that your guys are chipping up. Uh, you have to pay to get rid of it. Uh, just come dump it in, in, you know, my driveway and I'll put it to good use. So, uh, I would encourage you just to look at a native material. If you mix a little compost with it, you'll make any mulch better. Okay. Um, are the side growers, do, you, do yeah. they produce? Dave, David, I'll milk? get you to hang on a minute. I'll get Jimmy to put you on hold because we have to go to news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. Do have a couple of open lines. We're going to talk a little bit more with David and then with Kim and then with you. You know the number, 210-599-5555. So, Dave, sorry, had to cut you off there, but have to get out on the second for that newscast. It's your turn again. Okay, yeah, I I think I'm probably going to lead towards some uh, more common, like the hardwood in, in, in the flower beds, but I'm probably looking to put some of the cedar mulch around the raised beds just to uh-huh. keep a, a walking path and maybe cause a few things to not jump right through the other stuff as it de- decomposes. Well, I think the nice thing about cedar, too, is it tends to be a little bit stringier. It does stay in place better. It's not going to float away like Mark does when we <laughs> dreamingly get, you know, another really good rain. And this business that some people are going to tell you about, oh, no, cedar contains something that keeps plants from growing, that's simply not true. That's uh, um, that's an old wives' tale. Cedar never has a lot growing underneath it because it's so thick and screens the light out. But uh, cedar mulch does nothing to retard the growth of plants. And uh, uh, cheap, easy to find, a little bit longer lasting. And like I say, uh, well, I use a lot of it because we have our own chipper. We make our own cedar mulch. and But then, you know, mix maybe one part of compost to six or eight parts of cedar, and you'll have a living mulch that can't be beaten. Okay. Um, do you know if the growers produce sod year-round? They do produce sod. Um, 
most of the sod growers actually are over in the Bay City area, which stays a little bit warmer. Um, there's nothing wrong. Sod doesn't grow much above ground during the winter months, so uh, you're going to be buying dormant grass if you're buying zoysia or, or Bermuda. But um, they they have it available. Do they grow it? No, Mother Nature doesn't let it grow a whole lot in the winter. But uh, they certainly do produce it. They cut it. They sell it. Uh, and it's a fine time to establish most types of turf. And you, you mentioned zoysia and Bermuda. I mean, would that be true of Del Mar and Palmetto as well? Yes. Now, okay. St. Saint, Saint Augustine is not as cold hardy and uh it has to get awfully cold but you get down much below 20 uh floritam which was developed more as a coastal grass i've seen winters from floritam actually froze and died i've not seen that with palmetto or delmar so you know be sure that you do water prior to any freezing weather but uh um no that that certainly is true if you get saint augustine's as well as uh as well as uh, uh, Bermudas and the Zoysias. Okay, okay, due to a large construction project two, two years ago, followed by two uh, summers with no rain, um, <laughs> I, I, and now we've had a little rain, I've, I've got all manner of weeds, grasses, and broadleaf stuff growing. What can, uh, I, what can I do to... What's the best way to eliminate that before I lay it aside? Uh, just vinegar and orange oil. Leaves no residue behind. Um, it will <clears throat> kill, and any decent grass you have, if you have Bermuda or something out there that's gone dormant, it won't hurt it. But all these green winter weeds that come up, the grassy ones, the dandelions, the henbit, the clovers, um, all those things, just your vinegar and orange oil mix will take them out overnight and you can just you know put your new sod right on top of it you want to rake enough that your uh new sod has good you know sod to soil contact but um you can you can do that just about any time you'd like okay my water catchment system is just about online so i'm looking forward outstanding outstanding yeah, having having some rainwater, and the nice thing about that is that uh, it's yours to use anytime you want. You can totally ignore all the drought restrictions and everything else. If you've had the good sense to collect rainwater, then that's your water to use when you need it most. Yeah, we had just barely an inch of rain, and I probably have 18 inches in the tank just with that little bit. So if we get one of those rains that you alluded to a little bit ago i'll, I'll probably have to keep the, i'll have to open all the spigots probably because i because it'll be overflowing i'm pretty well sure. no you, you just have to get more uh you just have to get more storage capacity but you can figure yeah. for every thousand square feet of roof you have for every inch of rain you're going to collect seven to eight hundred gallons and that adds up in a hurry. Average average home has probably 3,000 square feet of roof, which means an inch of rain is going to get you 2,000 gallons of water in a hurry. And uh, uh, it's uh, to me, it's going to be one of these days the only reliable water source most folks have. They're so overdeveloping the hill country and uh, so many straws into the aquifers. I'm afraid that, uh, you know, Drought is something that's going to come around periodically, and water shortage shortages are here to stay. So uh, it's, it's a good investment you're making. I applaud you for doing so. 
All right, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome, David. Get out and have a good day, and we'll move along and talk to Kim. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a, a couple of questions, but one, I'm just, I'm really wanting to kind of understand a little more about um, the, the, I guess, uh, the mosaic virus that's kind of, I guess, becoming more rapid in the plumerias that um, I talked to you last year about this a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and right now, like, if, I, I guess out there and on the sites, and, and then I just got back from the International Plumeria Conference, and ah. they are, yeah, and it's, okay, so what they're saying is, is okay, obviously it's transferred through cutting tools. So I was just curious, because I know you do a lot with orchids and stuff, and they're talking about like best practices for making sure that you're cleaning your tools, that alcohol is no longer um, a good cleaning source, or maybe it never was, and that the tools now need to be boiled and you need to use WD-40 or something that can get all the sap <laughs> off of your cleaning tools. And, well, uh, oh, I'm just like, with, when you're sitting here with 200 plants and you're thinking about cutting um, the leaves off or doing things, you know, and I usually cut the leaves in preparation for storage if I get to a point where I can see a freeze in the forecast. Mm-hmm. Um, some years I have that and some years I don't. So, you know, we'll cut it off like an inch to the, uh, you're leaving about an inch of the petole and let it just, let it fall off naturally just to kind of get the leaf mess out of the way when mm-hmm. I do store it in our, in our little greenhouse area. Um, and plus it just saves on storage without all the leaves on it. Right. So I'm really worried about, okay, so I'm going crazy. I've got like 20 pairs of shears here and now. And <laughs> I've, never this, you know, I've never done it in the past. I don't have, I've never seen a problem on any of my plants just to kind of set that. But I was going to call you and ask you about best practices for that. And then is there any kind of um, induced systemic resistance that can be used? Because now I'm even hearing that it can get in the soil. Is that true? I've never heard of a virus being transmitted through the soil or anything in the soil. Viruses are are moved around, and there are several different mosaic viruses. Uh, tobacco mosaic virus is uh, one of the most common, but you probably have learned more about uh, the viruses that hit plumerias than I know. Uh, we have uh, we have several different viruses or are of concern in orchids, but if you want to know how most viruses get started uh it's probably from smokers because it has been demonstrated that people that handle tobacco a lot can get the virus on their fingers and simply breaking and you know out just working with the plants handling the plants um, that's one way that tobacco mosaic virus gets introduced into plants so number one don't smoke (laughs) and and certainly uh but you know friends and things like that it's just no tobacco in or around the greenhouse and whether it's chewing tobacco or any of the other habits that a number of us choose not to participate in uh that's probably number one uh, viruses are transmitted by some insects, uh, insects that, uh, you know, pierce, uh, things. Oh, golly, thrips, uh, have been one thing that have been implicated in, in, uh, transmitting viruses around. But again, it's not really very common at all. Uh, cleaning your, cleaning your pruning tools is, I think, a very good idea. 
And I, you know, look at what uh, look at what your veterinarian uses. I think about Doctor Kirby, and they, of course, have to sanitize constantly in the clinic. And he uses the old-fashioned Clorox, not the new stuff that has hydrogen. Uh, um, oh, not hydrogen, but has uh, the other type of uh, bleach in it, sodium hydroxide. You don't want that. You want the old sodium hypochlorite. So, old-fashioned bleach is a great thing, and about a five-minute soak is. All you really need, um, of course, Clorox is hard on metal. So again, WD-40 or something to uh, keep the keep the tools in good shape. Getting the sap off, I've never found that to be that much of an issue. It's it's fairly, uh, and if you clean as you go, rather than let the sap dry on your pruning tools, and you don't have to worry about it. Uh, we used to use even uh, just heat. Uh, I know a lot of orchid growers would have an old-fashioned Bunsen burner or alcohol burner or something like that lit, and they would just—I mean, they were—they were pruning with uh, or cutting blooms with very thin blades, uh, old razor blades. I, uh, you know, it's what uh, back in the days of people shaved with razors that had bigger blades. I would know people that saved them, just used them one time, and then disposed of them. So. Uh, probably, uh, and, and alcohol, especially if you get, I know you can buy 91% isopropyl alcohol. I can't believe that that's not enough to kill viruses. I suspect that even uh, strong hydrogen peroxide would do it. But um, keep in mind, and you know, this is common sense, but I've had people that, you know, thought they had to, you know, every time they move from one place to another on a plant to have a clean tool, no. You don't, when you're just pruning, you know, one plant, it's when you move from plant to plant that you have some concerns, you know, about uh, transmitting the virus. And, um, I, you know, a few years ago when we heard a lot more about AIDS than we seem to these days, I used to tell people just, you know, think about how AIDS gets gets spread around on needles and things like that and that's that's how viruses get spread around but uh the interesting thing is that uh we have found that many viruses can be controlled if not eliminated by spraying the plants with hydrogen peroxide so uh, all the people that say if a plant has a virus is doomed not necessarily uh we've seen rose rosette we've seen some things in orchids where and who knows whether it's just been suppressed to the point that you don't see the symptoms or whether it's actually eliminated it. But uh, I doubt if you heard about much about that at your conferences. But uh, a little diluted hydrogen peroxide will go a long way to taking care of viruses and viral symptoms. Now, keep in mind that there are plants that are intentionally uh, have a virus introduced into them, things like parrot tulips, those weird-looking flowers come from a virus in there, and a lot of variegated foliages, that's a virus-induced variegation. So um, there's just a huge number of viruses out there, and only a handful of them really cause us any concern. But uh, I don't know if I was, I don't grow as many orchids as I once did, and I used to grow and sell orchid cut flowers, did a lot of sterilizing. I might these days even think about getting a ceramic knife rather than a metal knife uh, because they're extremely sharp. They remain extremely sharp, and I think they're easier to clean than metal is. But uh, uh, those are just general things I would tell you about viruses and their avoidance. But staying away from tobacco is a big, big 
thing because uh, a lot of orchid growers who chose to use tobacco products ended up infecting their collections. Um, and, and, you know, you brought up an interesting point about with the sap-sucking insects because in my mind I'm sitting here thinking exactly like what you said. I can't imagine that sap-sucking insects would not transfer it, although in everything that I'm reading it says it cannot be transferred through the insects don't transfer it and they use the AIDS thing as like a an example of that and I don't I, I there's still so much research to be done right. I was just wondering if maybe just building the biological um, you know the the rhizomes and stuff in the soil and if that would help create an atmosphere in the plant so the plant itself could um, you know, like using the cornmeal, like you do with the oak wilt and stuff yeah. like that. That's, viruses are a whole different organism. There's a lot of question of whether a virus is truly alive because viruses can't reproduce except in a living organism. So, um, I, you can, good, you know, just good health. Uh, just like in people, is going to certainly reduce the symptoms. I don't know whether it'll, you can truly get a plant to the point that it may not, you know, that it just simply can't get a virus. But um, uh, many of the diseases we talk about, uh, things like oak wilt, that's a fungus, that's not a virus. And uh, I don't know of, uh, you know, and, th- and that's the thing. Antibiotics don't touch viruses. That's why you've got to have a strong immune system to help you get mm-hmm. beyond a virus. And uh, Dr. Kirby and I talk about this with all the time uh, on his show with uh, animals getting viruses because there's not. It's basically you're doing, uh, you're you're giving good palliative care, as they call it. You're simply keeping the plant healthier. So it's a great question. I did not realize it was that much of an issue in plumerias, but um, good sanitation. And, again, there's really, uh, you know, just any time you can break something rather than cut it, do that. And uh, uh, I suspect that hydrogen peroxide, in fact, I'll make a note to ask Howard Garrett about that, if if that's a good enough sterilant to kill viruses. Uh, But uh, or about the hydrogen peroxide when you mentioned that. Are you talking about like a fifty percent like a maybe a fifty percent mixture and I could literally put it in my hose and sprayer and spray down and it would absorb into the branches and yeah. maybe and then if there is now would I want to wait till I saw an infected plant or would I use that as a preventative measure? I would wait until you saw it because hydrogen peroxide is pretty much uh, indiscriminate and healthy plants are coated with several layers, especially of my, uh, you know, microbes, uh, bacteria, especially, and you don't want to be killing out the good guys. So I would limit my hydrogen peroxide spraying. Now we use it in soil as what they call a flocculant to loosen soils on a one-time only basis, but I wouldn't include it in my foliar sprays unless I were addressing a specific problem. Okay, um, now I'm going to totally switch subjects. I had a terrible case this year of grub worms, and it was interesting because I really didn't think that I saw any um, June bugs. It was, mm-hmm. it was kind of crazy. But we went on vacation, came back, and my whole yard was almost like dead, gone. And literally, I could, with my blower, if I were blowing the sidewalk, the grass would blow off. And mm-hmm. when we scraped back the soil, that we saw tons and tons of the adult grub worms. Uh-huh. So I know that that's what it was. Anyway, so I called, um, and, and 
I want to come back. It's a, it's a full sun, so I was thinking I wanted to come back with Floratam. Would that work well here on the coast? And I also oh, absolutely. Floratam was developed as a coastal grass because of its resistance to chinch bugs. Now, it's not any necessarily any more resistant to grub worms, but if you'll simply get in the habit of uh, two or three times a year putting out beneficial nematodes, grubs will never be a problem to you. I will. I I have that on my calendar now. It's not, and I just and so when I um, when I called a source around here, they're out of the floor tamper right now. So I called Douglas King Seed, and he suggested we just go ahead because I'm like I, I need to like keep the soil in place. Yeah, so yeah, we just over overseed. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's not really perennial. It's going to die out in the heat, but that's what I tell that's people all the time. If you just got to keep your soil in place. And if you just, a lot of people just want to have a beautiful green yard in the winter months and the perennial rye, which isn't really perennial, but it is a long season rye that stays a little bit more compact. Uh, they probably sold you Greyhound, which is a great variety, gets a little taller. I like the more compact variety called Top Flight, but both of them are great ways to cover up bare ground. Yeah, it, so I was just making, and then when would be a good time, like March, once this starts to die off, just get that in and then roll it, you know, put it down and roll it. When it stops being attractive, then it's time to put your, uh, or when you can get good Floratam, uh, just plant it, uh, just mow down the other. You want your new sod to have good sod-to-soil contact, but, uh, yeah, you'll warm up a little bit quick, more quickly than we will. So yep. when the grass starts showing up, get out and get it planted, Kim. Till this year, the backyard by St. Augustine never even turned brown. It doesn't usually die out. We don't have enough <laughs> We well, get two days just to make us yeah. happy. Well, Thank you so well, much for all your information. You, I do want to give you a quick plug on Rhonda. She has been fabulous. I, um, you know, got some blood work. I called her. I wanted to avoid, you know, saw some numbers I wasn't comfortable with. She just will sit with you and listen to you and her ideas. They work. I mean, she sent me a few <laughs> things, and then the next year, I'm like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. She, she is. Golly. Well, um, she and her family, and uh, they I um, thank you for the good comments, and she and her staff are wonderful. So you get out and have a good day, and gosh, I'm behind. I need to get a break in here, and then we'll be back. Thank you, Kim. Um, looks like I get to talk about great products from Nature's Creation. We're just talking about mulches and compost and things like that. Well, these folks produce top-quality products. I mean, yeah, you may... I found a few rocks in a couple of bags, and I have heard about, oh, occasional weed here or there. But compared to most places, the material that you get from Nature's Creation is going to be clean, effective. They inoculate it with mycorrhizal fungi. It's just simply some of the best you're going to find. They wanted me to talk especially today about their new bedding plant food, uh, specifically for both vegetables and flowers. And once again, all natural, no biosolids, and certainly nothing in there that's going to be harmful. But uh, they they just make quality products and their bedding plant food great if you're setting out pansies and johnny jump ups and things like that uh you're also going to find if you're improving the soil use their compost if you need a good cornmeal they've got what they call fungicidal cornmeal which has some garlic added to it if you're looking for a corn gluten meal the natural pre-emergent you bet they package a spreadable corn gluten meal i could go on and on there's so many good things that nature's creation produces they make all kinds of soil 
soils, cactus and succulent soil, garden soil, along with great potting soil. Nature Creation is a fine line of products. You can find them their products a lot of different places. Hill Country Gardens up in Bernie, Friendly Natives up in Fredericksburg, Millburgers carries their products, Maldonado's up in Kerrville, and both Rainbow Gardens here in San Antonio. We, of course, keep lots of things here at Shades of Green. It's a name to remember, Nature's Creation. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. going to be Edward and Frank. Edward's first. Good morning, Edward. Hey, good morning, Bob. Um, morning, sir. You talk about, good morning. I've heard you talk about exemptions for properties. We have 11 acres outdoors. And, and what exemptions can I put in for to help me with my taxes? Well, of course, uh, you know, um, property taxes are uh, protected from, well, they're reduced uh, either with a wildlife exemption or with an agricultural exemption. Now, uh, with smaller acreage, you, you know, you need something a little more intensive. I find that, you know, the rules are not uniform they're supposed to be but you probably need to get with your county tax office and ask them what will qualify you either for ag or for wildlife those are um those are the two things that are going to reduce your property taxes i know that even people who keep bees are qualified for a wildlife exemption people who grow almost any kind of produce for farmers markets or anything like that are qualified for an agricultural exemption uh, I'm sorry, the bees are for an agricultural uh, exemption. Uh, you would talk to Texas Parks and Wildlife to find out a little bit more about the things that you need to do to qualify for a wildlife exemption. Mainly they're going to be providing cover, providing water, uh, providing some food are things that you can do that may very well qualify you for a wildlife exemption. But those are the things that are going to reduce your property taxes. Now, um Putting land under conservation easement, which is a uh, more intense uh, thing, a more expensive thing to do, but that is going to give you some help on your personal income taxes. And uh, I really, it's too long a, a subject, but there are people around that give seminars on this periodically. But uh, to help with personal income tax, to help with the potentially estate taxes, uh, that's where you want to look at conservation easements just to reduce your property taxes is either going to be agricultural or wildlife and uh, even on small acreage there are lots of things you can do that will qualify you for those all right well thank you sir you have a good day you do the same let me know if i can help further i will look forward to it and uh frank hold on just a second i got that long call a minute ago that put me a little behind on uh, getting my ads done so let me take a second and talk about kinetico and again, I don't just talk about Kinetico. I've had a Kinetico water softener for many years, and I just love it. I don't worry about power outages, power surges, lightning strikes, the things that can kill an electronic water softener. I also like the fact that uh, Kinetico only recharges when the rosin needs to be recharged, and that really reduces the amount of water you use and waste and the amount of salt that you have to use. Kinetico simply is a better idea. It's been around for a lot of years. I love what they say. It's the last water softener you will ever own. They also let you try it for 90 days to convince yourself if you want to. 
to convince yourself of how good they are. But I tell you, they've been around a long time, and um, I don't know anybody that ever trades in their kinetic for a different type of water softener, and I know a lot of people that have traded in their electronic ones for Kinetico. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to Kinetico, K-I-N-E-T-I-C-O, name because it runs on kinetic energy, not electricity, but you can go to KineticoSA.com, or you can give them a call, 210-656-PURE. That's 210-656-PURE for Kinetico. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, let's just go straight back to the phone lines. Looks like it's going to be Frank and Ron and Mike. Frank is first. Good morning, Frank. Very good morning, Bob. Uh, good morning. I've got a couple questions. I know uh, how to take out a pine tree. I got one that's like three and a half feet. Can uh-huh. you just do it like a natural way? I can't burn it because they put a metal building next to it now. What, okay. what is the suggestion that you would use to to eliminate that that three and a half foot with the roots down in the ground? Them suckers are deep in there. Well, I probably uh, a stump grinder would certainly grind it down. I know you can rent them, but it's a big, heavy piece of equipment, but they're Lots of people around that, that do stump grinding. Lots of tree companies. Uh, uh, I have a friend up in Bernie uh, who works with, uh, you know, one of the John Deere dealers up there. Kelly Ellington's his name. And uh, uh, he makes it it's his part-time business is stump grinding. So that's, if you want it gone today, you know, that's sort of an instant thing. And the stump grinder grinds it up you know several inches down in the ground now ultimately it's going to rot ultimately it's going to leave a hole behind that you're going to have to fill back in with soil but uh where you can't you know burn it and and again the the burning is it's a little bit of a misnomer it it just kind of smolders its way down into the ground but uh uh, if it's right up close to a building probably even that's not acceptable so uh if you were to use the same chemical we use when we're going to burn it but just let it rot naturally uh the uh, potassium nitrate saltpeter stump remover whatever you want to call it that rots the wood more quickly and you could just drill a bunch of holes down into it put your saltpeter down in there and it it will rot the wood a lot faster but in your situation stump grinder may be the best way to go okay and bob those roots Will they die being that it was cut uh, down to the ground like that? Yeah, pine trees don't sprout from their roots. No, that's not an issue at all. Conifers are a whole different thing anatomically, and uh, I don't think I've ever heard of a pine tree or spruce or, you know, true fir. Those things just don't come back from the roots. So, yeah, if you've cut it down as close as you can to ground level, it's, it's gone. Okay, now I got another quick question. That chili pekin, patine, or how do you say that? Well, they're actually two different, technically, and it's just a common name, but people will call the bigger one a chili pekin. They'll call the little tiny one a chili patine. Most people use them interchangeably, but uh, um, yeah, they're hot little peppers that uh, can be really useful in the kitchen. Yes, uh, and I know I always see them along the fence line. Do you guys sell those? Any nurseries sell those plants? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I wouldn't plant them this time of year because they're not cold hardy. Once they're established, they will usually come back even if they freeze down. But, yeah, we carry lots of chili patines in the spring and summer months. I think most good nurseries do. Okay, can you grow them from seed, Bob, or is it better just to buy the plant and grow uh, them that way? Depends on how patient you are. If you're going to grow them from seed, you need to soak that seed either in garret juice or in liquid seaweed or something like that. Um, you know, the reasons you see them along fence lines is because that's where the birds sit and poop. And they're commonly. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to yeah. say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they they call them bird peppers because in order to sprout, you know, that seed goes through all the acids and things in a bird's digestive system. That's what activates the seed to where it'll sprout and grow. If you just bought seed and put them out, only one out of a hundred is going to sprout. But you give them a good garret juice soak. Uh, or something like that, just for 10 or 15 minutes before you plant, yes, you can grow them from seed very easily. Okay, and then in the springtime, you all have those plants? We most definitely do. We do. We have them in the fall, too, but I'm not going to suggest you plant them outside right now because we're coming into winter. Keep them indoors. Keep them indoors. I call, you know, um, get somebody to run out and look, but I know we had chili pekins just a few days ago, so uh, oh, wow. uh, call okay, after deal. nine, and if we've got one, we'll put your name on one of them for you. All right, brother. Appreciate all your help. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Frank. Thank you. Next in line is Ron. Good morning, Ron. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm off to a good start. It's going to be a gorgeous fall day out there. Are we done with winter already? <laughs> I wish. Uh, yeah. I tell you, it looked like fog. I don't know if you've been out, but man, it was foggy driving in this morning. It's uh, really, really very much like a fall morning. So uh, plan on getting out and enjoying. Yeah. Hey, quick question. I called you at, uh, at your uh, nursery the other day, and I was asking you about the, uh, you know, what are the chances of contracting rabies from a possum bite? And I know you were right. saying to I, Dr. Kirby about that. And he said that uh, as far as he knows, there has never been an incident of uh, possum transmitting rabies. Um, yeah. He, he um, again, that's not legal medical advice or anything like that, but he said that, right. uh, uh, that so far as he knows, no one has ever contracted rabies through a possum bite. They apparently just, their body doesn't tolerate the virus in their system for reasons unknown, but uh, they're, they're, that's one of one of the things that makes them a very interesting ancient creature. Mm-hmm. What I read on them was it's because of their uh, body temperature is so low that the virus doesn't thrive in that low of a body heat versus that of like a raccoon or a fox or coyote, you know, which has a higher body temperature is where it thrives at more so. That that there might be something to that. <laughs> I just uh, I just you know I I keep well and I understand your special situation, but uh, a lot of people possums look like they're slow and stupid and you know can't defend themselves. But if you've ever seen a possum skull, as I find in the wild periodically, you find that they are well equipped with uh, canines and other other dentition, and uh, they're not something to be messed with. Yeah, I had done it once before, and I had thicker gloves on it, and it was a much bigger possum. And the minute I grabbed him, he played possum. But this one, uh, I guess uh, when Mom was teaching the possum class, he wasn't paying attention. (laughs) 
Well, I've, I've turned around I've, and latched onto my glove, and I just didn't have a thick enough glove on. And so hey, well. I, got, I, I went and got a tetanus shot, and I took some uh, 10 days of antibiotics. So I, my uh, one of my coworkers said, well, what about the possum? He bit you. Did he die? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Tell you what I did, Ron. Um, and this is more for armadillos and things like that. Uh, uh, went out to uh, Bass Pro. I was looking for a really good net. And possums and armadillos, of course, have very strong claws. But I found it's actually a uh, rubberized material that uh, mm-hmm. I have used. Uh, I, I thought at first I'd just get what the animal control people you know use uh, but uh they uh anyway they helped me out out there and i got a really heavy duty rubberized net that uh has helped me transport possums coons and especially armadillos safely so uh i i don't think i'd i don't think i'd get within uh, reaching distance of a possum in the future <laughs> all right just one more quick question um you know after this wonderful texas uh, summer we had my uh, yard took a beating, so what would be the best way to revive it? I'm, I'm, I've heard you before say, you know, good compost. Um, compost to be compost to be the number one thing. Half an inch of compost will work miracles. If you want to go one step better, put down some good organic fertilizer and then put half an inch of compost on top of it. Um, if it's not dead, it will respond. And uh, I truly think that sometimes things that I have thought were dead I've seen come back pretty strong, and plus uh, compost suppresses weeds. It has, uh, oh, some of the humic acids and things in there work as a natural pre-emergent. So it's a great way to stimulate your grass and suppress the weeds. So, yeah, that's that's my favorite thing to restore. Now, spraying with a little garret juice, a little seaweed, a little molasses, all those things will help. But I think the number one thing, good organic fertilizer, good thin layer of compost on top, and... Uh, um, whatever's alive will definitely come back and thrive. If uh, I decided to uh, get a, you know, like a pallet load of grass, what would you recommend to, to get? Sun or shade? What's that? Sunny area or shady area? Um, there's some shade and there's some, some sun. I got a little bit of both. Well, I, I don't object to any type of grass. I think most people have too much grass, and I would encourage you to think about some additional beds or berms or places where you can plant ground covers or shade-tolerant perennials rather than going, you know, fence-to-fence grass. But I think mm-hmm. everybody ought to have a little bit of grass for your pets and kids or grandkids or whatever. In a shady area, it's going to need to be St. Augustine. I think Del Ma- uh, Palmetto and Del Mar are the two best varieties. In a sunny area, uh, it could be Bermuda, it could be Tiff Bermuda, it could be Buffalo, could be uh, uh, oh, it, a couple of different zoysias. Uh, and if you want St. Augustine in the sun, there's a variety called Floratam that's good. So you've got a lot of different choices. Uh, if you just want to have something green for the winter, go ahead and get one of what they call perennial rise. They're not really perennial. Uh, but there's something you can plant from seed, and a week later you'll have a nice green lawn die out about June or so when it starts getting hot next spring, and you can go back in with your, uh, have some time to think about which permanent grass you want. Uh, the rye that I like best is one called Top Flight. Uh, I know Douglas King Seed, and they'll ship to your front door. They uh, have one called Greyhound, which is a little bit taller, but still a very good and very popular uh, rye. And that top flight, is that for sun or, or shade? 
Uh, it'll grow either place. It'll stay a lot more compact in the sun. Okay. All right. Well, Bob, thanks for your help. I appreciate you uh, getting with Dr. Kirby on that question I had. Well, that was interesting to me as well and happy to do it. Uh, by the way, just one ride that I would very definitely avoid is going to be the cheapest okay. one out there. It's called Oregon Rye, and you do not want that. The others are a little more expensive and worth every penny of it. So, Ron, you have a great weekend. I know we'll talk again. I've got to do my last break of the hour here, and then we'll come back and visit with Mike. I get to talk to you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and once again, I can sit here and look at our beautiful Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on our nursery, know that it has stood up to baseball-sized hail with barely a dimple, looks as good as the day we had them install it, and the only time we've called them for anything additional was when a truck backed into it at one point. A Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof is truly the last roof you will ever put on your home or business. And, uh, you know, they offer you the best warranty in the industry. The roofs are so energy efficient, they're going to save you money on every every utility bill. Plus, most insurance companies will give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance because they know they're never going to have to replace that roof. Stop worrying about the shingles and what the cold's going to do to them and the heat's going to do to them. Get a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof and you get peace of mind. Let me tell you, it's worth a lot. The roofs are very reasonably priced. Lots of choices in styles and colors. Don't put it off. If you're in need of a new roof or if you're building a new home, simply tell your builder you want Southwest Metal Roofing Systems to put the roof on there. Give them a call to learn more. 210-822-6868. That's 822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing System. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening once again. And once again, let's go straight to the phone lines. I don't want to keep anybody waiting any longer than we have to, and that means it's Mike's turn. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, sir. I have a question for you. Uh, we're, we're moving out toward the Seguin area. We've got on our existing property a couple of big old pecan trees and the kids want to take some pecans and plant them out at the new place and okay so how do we grow pecan tree from seed basically it's being sure that you have a good pecan to start with and this year it's golly we're just going to have to see how well filled out the pecans are um do you have do you have very many nuts on your tree this year yeah, the the two trees that we had on the current place there, we've got a decent amount, not as much as most years, but it's in an area where we watered, so the, the tree got good water over the summer and stuff, so the, the nuts are looking pretty decent. Are any of them falling yet? Is the, have the husks opened on any of them yet? Uh, the, uh, the the husk is, is starting to open on them. That's why okay. I've been kind of holding off as long as yeah. possible to, to pull them down. I would crack one or two just to see, you know, how much meat they have in them. Having had such a dry summer, even though you've watered, um, we're going to have to just kind of wait and see how viable they are. In a year when we knew that there were, you know, that there was a good deal of meat in them, I would tell you, throw the pecans in a bucket. The ones that sink are probably going to be the best. Uh, this year, I just, I'm not sure with the, and, and I haven't cracked any of mine. They haven't started falling yet. But, um, you just, you know, you want them out of the husk. 
uh, you want to look very carefully and be sure there's not a little pinhole-sized hole in them. There's uh, something called a pecan nut case bearer that gets in and kind of hollows them out, and that, of course, would you know ruin their viability. But uh, I would I would choose just in, by feel I would choose the heaviest nuts you can find. They're the ones most likely to be viable. Um, if you want to throw some of them, if you've got lots of them, throw them in a bucket of water. The ones that sink are very definitely going to be the most viable. Start them in containers. Simply plant them about oh, one to two inches deep. Don't worry about the orientation of the pecan. Just any good potting soil, you know, press it down in. And most importantly, cover the pots with chicken wire, with hardware cloth, because a squirrel can smell a pecan six inches down in the ground, and they will come and dig them all up and have them for dinner if you uh, if you just put the pots out there with soil and nuts in them. But beyond that, protect them from freezing, but they don't necessarily have to come inside. Water enough to keep the soil just barely moist. And next spring, you should have some nice young pecan sprout. Uh, when they get to be about a foot or two tall, you can decide if you want to just... Uh, have a you know a tree similar to what you had or if you want you're really going for production at that point you can graft them with any one of about 20 different good pecan varieties okay that sounds simple enough i was thinking we might have to chill them or you know, crack no. them or something to, to get no. it going no it's just uh, i just hope that you've been in an area that you've gotten enough rain that the seeds in effect uh which is what a pecan is but anyway the the cotyledons inside of there have developed um, and and filled out. And like I say, in a dry year like this, uh, uh, not going to be as many good viable pecans, but uh, just pick the heaviest ones, especially if they sink. Go ahead and plant them at your convenience and protect them from the critters. All right. Sounds like a fun time for the kids to play with. Uh, Sounds like a fun thing to me, too. Y'all get out and enjoy your day. All right. Thank you. You're welcome, Mike. Thank you. Almost Howard Garrett time here. Uh, remember, Nature Fest going on down on the south side. Go to greenspacesalliance.com. You can read all about it. going to be a great event. Uh, I'll be at the Mexican Food Supper to support the Volunteer Fire Department up in Kindelia. starts at about 5.30 this evening. The raffles and auction will be a little bit later in the evening, but uh, lots of good food to eat. Now, next Saturday, a week from today, uh, check out the hangar dance. If you love vintage aircraft, if you love just a good evening, uh, they're having their hangar dance up at their airfield in San Marcos, Black's Barbecue. And boy, that's some good barbecue. They're catering it for them this year. And again, uh, next Saturday, I believe the Sisterdale Volunteer Fire Department is having their get together and need to support our volunteer firemen and women. Right back after news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But as you know, uh, don't dial right this minute. Uh, We'll have time for a few more calls at the end of the show, and then we'll uh, do this all over again tomorrow morning from 8 until 11. Right now is the time that we get to visit with the Dirt Doctor. Good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning. How's everybody? It is a beautiful fall day down here, and uh, gosh, I had drove through some of the thickest fog I have seen in a long time coming in this morning, so maybe summer's finally gone. It's going to be uh, some nice weather for gardening, but uh, anyway, looking forward to it. Not seeing hardly any fall color at all yet, but uh, uh, the weather is certainly improving. 
I tell you one of the most interesting things on Fall Keller I just noticed yesterday. I uh, my last column I wrote was just uh, an update on my uh, warning uh, to people to not plant the hybrid maples. Right. And I added to it uh, shots of the the story of the ones on uh, Lovers Lane in Dallas, uh-huh. uh, yep. starting with pictures with when they looked really good and when they started looking bad and then the last picture is that they ain't, ain't there no more and uh, i uh, i was looking around for maybe a couple more shots of it in color talking about this is why these things are bought so much and oh, yeah. I, I couldn't find any good color the, the uh, hybrid maples are usually spectacular in their color uh not too far from my house right on abrams road Mm-hmm. Are just kind of a dull brownish, orangey, little bit of red, not a good color at all. And my uh, uh, Japanese maples, some of them are kicking leaves off a little bit here and there yeah. with very little color. So I don't know. I don't know. We may not have much fall color at all. On the other hand, sometimes the early color is pretty weak and then. Later on, we get some nice deep colors from the uh, oak. So, and that's what happened last year. Yeah, last year we thought we weren't going to have any color, and then it just came late and was absolutely brilliant. The thing that is another thing that is interesting is uh, our cedar elms around here started losing a tremendous number of leaves uh, just from the drought. Now that we have had some rain, they've stopped dropping leaves, but not, not one leaf on the tree showing any color. And that's another one that usually is a yellow color, not a red color. But normally they give us real nice color in the fall, and they're just sitting out there pure green so far. So once again, just goes to show that no two years are really ever alike. Well, I think one thing that happened to them is I think they were damaged by the last three uh, yep. winters and they're they've been weakened a little bit of course sometimes and a lot of people would argue that you get better fall color when the plants are in stress a little bit but one thing cedar elms will uh, have happen is they'll get a fungus and that's what causes a lot of times that kind of off color to the green mm-hmm. late summer right and spraying occasionally with uh garret juice is uh uh, you know, a real mild way to prevent that. If you sprayed with hydrogen peroxide, it would uh, totally eliminate it if people mm-hmm. want to deal with it. It's a cosmetic thing. You really don't have to do anything. Well, i tell you one thing they're doing is making seed. My gosh, they, you know, uh, they, and they're tough little seedlings to pull up if they come up areas where you don't want them. And uh, I'll put them right up there with hackberries as being hard to get rid of when they come up in the wrong place. But I don't think I've ever seen a heavier crop of seed on the cedar elms than we're seeing right now. Yeah, the easiest seedlings, it seems, uh, year in and year out are the elms, the American elms that come mm-hmm. up, they're easy. Cedar elms are, are tougher. I don't know why there's a difference here. <laughs> That's an interesting question, but uh, yeah. anyway, it's. Uh, I hope your weather's as pretty as ours is, because it's just, uh, oh, it's it's really nice. We finally got some moisture back in the soil, and I think it's going to be a great weekend for gardening. It's beautiful here. Plants are <clears throat> loving it. i got to get around today and uh, check the moisture level once we had that cool weather uh was being careful to not over 
water, except for the plants that are under eaves and things like that. We've mm-hmm. gone long enough now for container plants especially to be needing a little bit of uh, supplemental water. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I came across a couple of interesting things. Actually, a friend brought a couple of articles. And, uh, you know, we've talked before about uh, whether whether coffee grounds were good things to have in the garden. And I always take things with a grain of salt. And uh, this article came actually out of England. A fellow at Kew Gardens was writing it. And he was saying that caffeine is a natural growth retardant and i'd not heard that i've you know and and i've used moderate numbers of coffee grounds but uh and i've always thought that you know they brought lots of beneficial fungi but this guy was really recommending against using very many of them and saying that at one point they're actually looking at caffeine as something of an herbicide because it was such a such a strong growth retardant, but I'd never heard that before. Have you ever heard of caffeine as being a growth retardant? Yeah, we talked. I thought we had talked about that before. One of my listeners called me uh, after I'd been recommending uh, coffee grounds for a long time, going mm-hmm. the compost and throw. You know, I would throw coffee grounds out myself on a daily basis, just here and there. Uh-huh. And one of the places where I fit out the most, I've I've never had real good growth in the ground cover in that area. The really? The plants all look good, yeah. But the ground cover it was always kind of a head scratcher. Huh. And I even had to replant it a couple times. And then one of my listeners called me one day and said that he had used uh, a real heavy amount of it in his uh, beds to plant seeds. Just propagation uh, mm-hmm. soil and he said he had no, almost no no germination at all oh, wow. he shut it down completely well, so yeah it's definitely a problem I and mean, i'm sure it's the caffeine i think if or i'm relatively sure it's caffeine we need to do some testing with decaf and and regular coffee and seeds but <laughs> if, if people are going to use too much of it it'd be best to use the uh the decaf sure. on the other hand you can put you can put uh, coffee grounds, and this is what got me to using it in the first place. You can put coffee grounds in a bag or in a container of some kind, in in moist in a moist way, and then seal it up and leave it there, and then open it up in a few weeks or months or whatever, and you'll see all kinds of green and blue fungus oh, yeah. growing like crazy in it. So that's that's how I got to thinking that it would probably be really good makes sense i mean caffeine mm-hmm. is a i mean uh, caffeine is a pretty powerful stimulant and uh, it obviously uh, can do something negative to the to the seed that's it's just interesting and I, I guess i've never used large quantities of it but uh, uh i had never really noticed any negative effects but it's probably just because i was using a little bit at a time and probably like a lot of things it's uh it's not going to be a problem unless you're using a whole lot of it. But uh, I think that's anyway, the case, yeah. yeah, it's it's just interesting research. Uh, another question that you may have actually heard uh, Plumeria grower had called after having gone to a big conference. I didn't know they had Plumeria conferences, but I, I guess just about any real popular plant. And uh, they were talking about virus problems in Plumerias. And we were discussing whether hydrogen peroxide would be 
effective as a uh, something to clean your pruning tools with. And uh, I suspect it would, but I don't know that I've ever really seen any research as to how good a viricide it is. I know we've you know, we recommend spraying it to suppress and perhaps even eliminate viruses in plants. But do you think that that would be a good thing for cleaning pruning tools? Oh, yeah, that's all I recommend. Um, yeah. Use hydrogen peroxide in a little quart spritz bottle and uh, when you're uh, pruning anything that's susceptible to any kind of disease, just a little spritz uh, on the tools and on the cut is uh, definitely something to do. You know, that's what I recommend as part of the uh, rose rosette uh, mm-hmm. problem. Right. And a lot of people, when I first started writing about that some years ago, a lot of people, especially the critics, uh, tried to scare everybody away from it, telling people I was recommending hydrogen peroxide as the control. Well, mm-hmm. the control is the overall sick tree treatment for rose right. rosette. Anytime you're dealing with a really tough disease of any kind, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, oak wilt or rose rosette or anything in between. The best uh, control, without question, is the entire sick tree treatment. It's just that oh, yeah. the hydrogen peroxide happens to be uh, one of the steps in mm-hmm. the sick tree treatment, especially when virus is involved. And that, you know, the way we discovered it was a truck farmer a listener reader of mine years ago uh, had heard me talking about it as far as treating cuts and maybe it'll work on uh, things, some things in the soil. And he tried spraying it on uh, squash where he had really mm-hmm. severe mosaic virus and it completely right. shut down the mosaic virus in a short period of time. So that's how the whole, the whole, uh, recommendation and use of hydrogen peroxide from our standpoint got going. Well, and we've we've done the same thing on uh, some of the curly top on tomatoes and things and, and yep. seen same. the same results. I, I, I guess, honestly, I just didn't know if the 3% was strong enough to be effective in, in cleaning cutting tools. But, yeah, it's it's very much a part of In fact, I've got a, a bottle of hydrogen peroxide just about everywhere I have, just about anything around the greenhouse and... Uh, but um, well, that's you know that that's good to hear because uh, I think it really is important on orchids on uh, just about anything that is susceptible to especially mosaic virus that uh, you do prune when you move from or you do clean your pruning tools when you move from one plant to the next. So anyway, not easy. Only, yeah, not only go ahead. Would I, not only would I recommend three percent to be effective. I don't mm-hmm. think you have to re- use it that strong. Really? I think you cut it 50-50 with water, and it'll still work at that rate. That's... In fact, I, I have seen uh, burn on plants using it at 3%, uh, especially huh. in the summer. Uh-huh. So, it, yeah, normally what I recommend for cleaning, for uh, treating the equipment or anything like that, I, I use 3% just out of laziness a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But but uh, what I recommend really is cut it 50-50 with water, and you know you've got something down one and a half percent or something like that, and it works great. Yeah, and Roberta uses it very widely for controlling algae in fountains and you know mm-hmm. uh, yep. bird baths and things like that. It's it's just a remarkable substance to be so simple, so inexpensive, 
and uh, just has an awful lot of uses in the garden. Well, when you read about it online, of course, we believe everything that's on the internet. <laughs> uh, it'll it'll warn you uh, about using it in aquariums inside. Uh, that you should use, you know, very, very small amounts, you know. Uh, and I I bring gambusia in mm -hmm. from my outdoor water right. feature and put them in, in my uh, aquarium quite a bit. And I've played around and experimented with using a lot. In other words, after I'll feed the gambusia sometimes, I'll pour, I don't know, several ounces of... Mm -hmm. Uh, hydrogen peroxide into an aquarium. My aquarium is very, very small, and it's one by one by two, whatever uh -huh. however many gallons that is. And not only does it never hurt the gambusia, they seem to uh, thrive, and it keeps the algae under control very well. And I don't, I don't ever do that <clears throat> changing of the water out completely like a lot of people recommend. I just change the filter. Uh -huh. time to time, and uh, use the hydrogen peroxide, and it keeps it very clean. Well, gambusia are tough little fish. I, I love that fish because, you know, talk about the easiest way to reduce mosquitoes, uh, is, you know, as long as it's not something that gets dry every now and then. I put gambusia in a little water feature I put way up on top of one of my hills, and I went back two years later, and, uh, yeah, they were still alive and healthy in there, and uh, plenty of algae, but absolutely no mosquito larvae. So I, I, I like gambusia uh, for lots of different reasons, and I think anybody that's got an outdoor pond, I mean, they coexist so well with koi and uh, goldfish and all the other things we put out there, but they're... They're really... Their common name mosquito fish is very well deserved. And they can live indoors if you want to play yeah. with them in your aquarium, too. We, we just called them guppies when we were growing up. I think that's the same thing, but... Uh, uh, good, good little fish. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, we're having people bring in, uh, especially this summer, uh, dead sections out of different kinds of boxwood. I think it's just drought, and people are all panicked over boxwood blight. And in reading about it, uh, my reading suggests that uh, the disease called boxwood blight is pretty much confined to the coast, east coast and west coast. Uh, I haven't seen anything down here that I would identify as boxwood blight. Have you seen anything up in your area? Well, it's a good question. I personally have never recommended boxwood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been in the landscape design business forever. I don't think I ever put boxwood on a plan. Uh -huh. um, I've seen all kinds of problems with boxwood through the years, and the most common one has been nematodes. Uh -huh. uh, so I, I think what happens, you have nematodes, you have some disease in the plants. I think they like a little cooler climate, for one thing. And then when there's a, that level of stress, and maybe some other things can come in and you know be p a part of the problem. We I've had a lot of people send me pictures of freeze damage the last uh -huh. few years of boxwood also. So I don't know. I think I think hydrogen peroxide again could be a, a good tool. Mm -hmm. You know, foliar feeding. Uh, you know, with all the stuff that we recommend, uh, could uh -huh. help as well treating the soil. If you do have something like that showing up, I'd recommend treating a bed of boxwood just like you treat a tree with uh -huh. the entire sick tree treatment. 
I think that's the best thing to do. Well, as I like to say, you don't have to. A plant doesn't have to be sick to benefit from the sick tree treatment. But uh, I still have, and they were planted long before I was around uh, boxwood hedge in front of my old house in the country. I suspect those plants are, you know, well over a hundred years old because uh, the house is about a hundred and almost a hundred and twenty years old. And I think I watered them once this entire hot, dry summer. So they they are a tough plant once they get well established. I find they're a little bit wimpy when you first set them out if you don't get a good root system. But uh, <laughs> these have set out there where they get the west sun and no water and, and thrive for 100 years. So I guess if you have just about anything, if you have it in the right place, it's still going to be a good plant. But uh uh, I don't know. We just we've got to well, get plus people. The fact, the new hybrids may be weaker than what you oh, have I, yeah. there as uh, one of the old original uh, plants. I don't mm-hmm. know, but it's uh, <clears throat> it, it's one that I've seen here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Anyway, I've seen I've seen problems time and time and time again with yeah. the uh, plant, and I've. <laughs> On the other hand, if you use dwarf yopon holly or carissa holly or something like that, you know, we just don't see the same problem. So there's some kind of weakness there yeah. In, yeah. in the plant, and it may be what, uh, you know, was alluded to, some kind of a, a pathogen in the uh, in the plant. It probably is. I would think that hydrogen uh, peroxide treatment, though, would help, and the whole sick tree treatment will definitely help. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of Yopon holly, have you grown any of the what they call micron holly that's a, a dwarf Yopon with just tiny little leaves? It's, it's become one of my favorites where people are looking for something a little unusual, a little different, and a very compact, very hardy plant. Is that something you see much of up in your area? No, but I planted some, and I lost about 90% of them uh, because they weren't watered properly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I t- so I don't have a good reading on them yet. I like the way they look, and that's why I got some and was uh, trying it. But I only have one plant, one or hmm. two plants left of quite a few that I planted. So just, just a little warning there that you need to make sure that when they're planted, you soak that root ball, it's sopping wet and goes into yeah. a moist bed, and then keep them moist, and they'll probably do pretty well for you. But if uh, they get a little bit on the dry side, it's a problem. And that's that's something that we are just recommending totally across the board that a lot of people, I think, have caused problems by planting dry plants. And that's that's one of the first things we tell everybody around here is encourage people to water things thoroughly, even to the, the point of, just sticking that whole plant down in a bucket for a few minutes before you plant it. I, I think a lot of people don't realize how many problems, because if that root ball is dry when you plant it, it's going to be very hard to get it properly moistened afterwards. That's virtually impossible. And one of the problems we're dealing with, and I, I don't guess it's going to change anytime soon because we've been complaining about it for a long time, but most of the growers use peat moss mm-hmm. and a lot of it. Yeah. And so when you put a peat moss ball into the ground, even though you've got healthy soil that's prepared with compost and the rock minerals and the sugars and everything, if it gets a little bit on the dry side, you're going to get moisture going back into that peat moss ball. It's hard to it's hard to moisten it again once it's dried out and yeah, we just we totally totally avoid anything we can that has peat moss and you know, we used to complain about how much bark 
the growers put in. And, uh, of course, if you keep fertilizing, uh, you'll keep things a whole lot healthier, you know, counteracting the effect of having the nitrogen robbing bark. But I've decided I'll take bark over peat moss any time. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. But, uh, well, anything new or different going on up in your world? Uh, any new discoveries, any any activities that you would like to share with everybody down here? Well, no, we, Judy and I went to uh, Tucson to uh, visit with Rio, and so we did a day on the <laughs> Rio story and uh, right. uh, helping them with their new house in uh, Bo and Logan with their new house in uh, Tucson. And it it's fun because it's a whole different palette of plants, you know, there. It's uh-huh. all the uh, succulents and cacti and, and all that. And they had some great plants already in, in their uh, landscape when they bought the place. So getting a little um, bit involved in that is uh, part of what I've been up to. You know, people ask me a lot, what are some of your favorite interior plants? And one of them that they're using there and I've recommended for a long time that surprises people is aloe vera. Aloe vera uh-huh. is one of those plants that will grow in sun or shade, including <laughs> indoors. Yep. And uh, just great. You know, it's foolproof. The only thing you can do wrong is water it too much. Or leave it outside when it gets really cold. It will freeze and it will turn to mulch. But, uh, yeah, and and it produces a an interesting bloom spike when they're mature that the hummingbirds love. It's... It, in fact, it may grow too well. I know that was one of the plants that has been banned from some of the plant exchanges around because they said everybody's bringing aloe vera and everybody already has it. But, yeah, it's it's one of those. And, uh, again, it's a super useful plant. Uh, I, a veterinarian I knew years ago uh, always kept a, a pot of it in his surgery, and that's what he used to put on uh, incisions to speed up healing and he would just crush a leaf put it on his fingers and just rub it all over any place that he wanted healing and my younger years i found it to be great on sunburn back when i mistreated my skin which i pay the price for a little bit these days but it's an amazing plant in fact the whole aloe family is not just aloe vera yeah it really is incredible and (laughs) you almost can't kill it i've had some pieces of uh little pups that have fallen out from time to time of a bigger plant, and I'll toss them over into a pot and think about planting them and then forget it and go back, you know, months <laughs> later and plant it. It'll start growing without any trouble. It's just it's just so durable. It's amazing. And, of course, cuts. If anybody has never tried it on, on um, burns, I mean, yeah. it is amazing. It not only will help that burn heal real quickly but takes the pain away just um, uh, virtually uh, instantly and uh, so one of the herbalists I was talking to a long time ago told me there's lots of evidence that the bigger the leaves the greater the healing quality whether it's for burns whether it's for wound healing and said the leaves don't reach their full medicinal potential until they weigh two pounds a piece and that's that's a pretty big leaf but uh, anybody that's grown halivers knows that it doesn't take very long to get a few leaves up there but I, i've known people that want to harvest just the the little new growth coming out but apparently that's one where if you can take a, a section or even just a part of uh, of an older leaf you're going to get uh, more potential for for healing and one of the coolest things about it is that the flowers not only are really pretty, but they're edible, and huh. they taste pretty darn good. When I was doing uh, consulting on 
Alavera Farm in Costa Rica, 250 uh-huh. big big plays. Yeah. They uh, first of all, they weren't taking their spent uh, skins of the leaves and putting them in a compost pile and using them. So I got them uh, going on that. But they also had a problem on getting the workers in the field to cut the flowers off because cutting the flowers off helped make the leaf tissue and the gel more powerful, put all the energy into that mm-hmm. rather than produce, than you know producing the uh, flowers. And they were working out in the field one day, and I just kind of moseyed out near them and just <laughs> casually snapped off a uh, flower and started eating it. <laughs> and they didn't have that problem anymore. <laughs> that's a good visual. That's a very good visual, and uh, uh, that's that's fun. That's very definitely fun. Well, one thing, plants, the spiky one. I, I'm sure y'all have that. Probably sell it. The one that's called spiky something or something along those lines. That's my favorite uh, ornamental version of aloe. Mm-hmm. Now I've got quite a bit of it around. We we get one they call tiger aloe, which may be the same thing that has pretty pretty well armed. So I suspect that's the same one, and uh, it's a very free bloomer as well. And it'll take a little more cold, but uh, most people who had it in their yards lost it in uh, 2021. But it it had lived for several years, and and it's it's just an unusual plant. I, I like the cacti and succulents. Those are probably some things that uh, you'll put in Bo and Logan's in yard uh, that'll be there for years to come. Yeah, they they fell in. I took them to a nursery, and they fell in love with foxtail ferns too. They uh-huh. want some of that, and you know that is that is one of the the best around. It's just a terrific. And also the uh, the bearded yucca, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, yucca rostrata. Uh-huh. You know, I like it because it it looks spiky, but you feel it, and it's real soft, and it, mm-hmm. it's one of my favorites in that uh, in that group of plants too. And if people are looking for a different uh, uh, asparagus to grow, one of our customers and friends down here uh, has planted asparagus plumosus, the uh, one that uh, yeah, so many florists use as a filler. And it has been a beautiful ground cover. Compact growing has taken all the cold. It froze in 21, but came right back. And uh, for something that's soft, it'll grow in the shade or in the sun. I wish we could get more of that plant. We buy as much as we can every time we see it. But uh, it's it's a great plant for the landscape. No, I agree. I like all those. The foxtail, it's, uh, it's so distinctive. It kind of caught their... Uh, attention and they bought a nice one left it in pots and I've warned them that uh, they're not going to be quite as carefree as the cacti in the yard you're going to have to not let it get completely dried out but on the other hand because of the root structure that those things have oh, yeah. those little nodules all over mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. last a long time between waterings yeah and they'll they'll give you a little warning if they're getting too dry for they just uh turn up their toes and die but uh, uh one last thing i wanted to get in uh, for today and i just i'm i'm telling you my personal preference not making recommendations to anybody else but uh, i'm going to vote against prop one in the texas constitutional 
uh, things because to me and everybody I talk to in their organics business says it looks to them like, uh, you know, all this business of be sure we protect our farmers so they can do everything they've always been doing. Sounds to me like it's an attempt to make it much harder to ban the use of uh, some of the chemicals uh, that we don't like, the Roundup and some of those other things, and even GMOs. So uh, um, I've decided it's something that I'm I'm not going to vote for. Well, I agree, and uh, I'll talk about it. I'm glad you brought that up because I need to mention it to everybody on my show uh, tomorrow. It's uh, definitely the angle there that's uh, yeah. they're, they're after to do stuff that we're not in favor of, so... Vote no, prop one. <laughs> and uh, I guess we're getting close to being out of time this week, but uh, friend David Vaughn sent some uh, real interesting, and it's an, actually an old article about lightning that I'm actually forward this on to you, and lightning and lightning damage, that uh, I learned a, a good deal about lightning from reading and uh, how lightning can cause damage. It can take an extended period of time to show up and just... And uh, the fact that the concussive effect of a lightning bolt, uh, that blast that we hear as thunder, can many times be as damaging as the electricity and the heat generated. But anyway, it's an interesting article, so I'll uh, I'll be sending that your way sometime before long. Sounds good. Look forward to seeing it. Yeah, that lightning uh, can cause all kinds of problems, as we know, but I'd like to see what he has there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting stuff. But as always, we wish you guys a very happy weekend and uh, hope you'll be able to get out and spend some time in the garden and oh, so much more to talk about. So let's just do it again next Saturday. Sounds like a good plan. Everybody enjoy those healthy gardens out there, and we'll see you next week. And have an aloe vera for dinner. <laughs> some flowers. <laughs> How are you having? Too much of it. It can cause a few internal problems. I, eat I, too much. I imagine so. Well, listen, y'all have a great week, and thanks again for sharing your Saturday morning with us. Uh, Mr. Garrett, oh, we'll look forward to it. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, dirtdoctor.com. Great place for information uh, that is very much applicable in the Hill Country in San Antonio as well as in the Metroplex. And uh, recommended highly, one of the few things on the Internet I think you can really trust. Uh, let's get a one quick break in here, and then we'll have time for some more phone calls. Looks like uh, I get to talk to you about, uh, let's see what I have here it looks like next in line will be actually the freeze miser get to talk to you about the freeze miser and again uh, we've had a little taste of cold weather we've had uh, a bit of weather that could potentially damage pipes and hydrants but not anything like we're likely to have later in the winter the freeze miser is the answer to avoid frozen pipes and frozen faucets so easy little device you screw onto the hydrant turn the water on and then just walk away from it. No water comes out unless the water inside the pipe gets down close to freezing. When it approaches freezing, it starts dripping the hydrant automatically. And then it shuts off when it warms up. So you can put them on, leave them on for the whole winter. If it's a hose you use frequently, put a little white connector in there. Put the hose on one side, put the freeze miser on the other side, and you will be protected. Just remember, you have to leave the water on 
on the side that uh, is connected to the freeze miser so that it can do its job of dripping, allowing the water to circulate through the pipes in order to keep them from freezing. Look for freeze misers at independent nurseries, hardware stores, places like that. You're not going to find them in the box stores. You want to see exactly how they work and even order them online? Well, check out freezemiser.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Been telling you about all sorts of fun events. Wanted to get one more in here before the show was over. And this is next Friday. This is not next weekend, but this is next Friday, uh, which will be November the 10th. And uh, they're going to have a rededication of the uh, Veterans Memorial uh, down at uh, Memorial Plaza here in San Antonio, down Auditorium Circle, down that way. And uh, it'll be next Friday at 10 a.m., a fairly short, uh, maybe 30 minutes or so ceremony. But it's very, very important that we don't forget people who sacrificed for us and many of them who made the ultimate sacrifice. But anyway, this will be uh, something good going on uh, downtown San Antonio next Friday and looks like it's going to take place right around 10 o'clock. Ah, let me get back over here for a second and see who all we have uh, waiting to talk. It looks like my only caller right now is going to be Kenny, but uh, Quality Matters is in. Good morning, Kenny. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? Oh, it's a beautiful day out there. Looking forward to a great day. Warm enough to enjoy, but uh, cool enough to not sweat too much. So my ideal idea of fall. That's what I'm talking about. Um, so I did, uh, did get a couple of freeze misers, uh, in the mail yesterday. So I got them installed, ready to go just in case. It's, uh, I think it's a good thing and they, they really do work. Um, I've put them on, on, I, my, my home is well over a hundred years old. And back then they stuck the hydrants way up out of the ground and, uh, uh, believe me, over the past two winters, or three winters, actually, uh, that I've used them, it's fun to walk out and see them, no water coming out in the afternoon, see them dripping the next morning when it's really chilly, and then just shutting themselves back off. And it's some pretty amazing technology. Those were actually uh, a couple of, inventor of inventors who live over in the Seguin area came up with that. So glad to see oh, good things cool. from local people, believe it or not. Oh, cool. Um so, uh, also, I heard you talking about uh, the lightning strikes or whatever. But anyway, mm-hmm. years ago, you recommended me that I plant uh, a uh, a tree. And so, I did plant a monorail. Uh-huh. Uh, I know it's been through some freezes. Uh, but when it was young, it had a, uh, a crooked. It was, well, I don't know. I came home and it was leaning uh, down with icicles on it. And that was when it uh-huh. was like a pencil. Uh-huh. And you told me, don't worry about the curve. It just, it's just going to add a character when it grows old. So anyway, the, the tree is awesome. It's, it's big and it did get struck by lightning two years ago. Uh-huh. And, uh, but it seemed to, uh, it seemed to have recovered from that. Uh, the, you know, the branches filled in nice and it's all good. So, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, so what are, First of all, do y'all sell bamboo at uh, Shades of Green? We sell only clumping bamboo. The running bamboo is what gets to be such a big, big weed problem. I think the clumping bamboo is one of the prettiest landscape plants out there. 
and uh, yes, we do have a pretty good supply of it right now. And uh, backing up to your Monterey Oak for just a minute, uh, my partner had one uh, which also got hit by lightning, and it, it struggled for probably a year or so afterwards, but it has turned into a totally beautiful tree. So, uh, yeah, it's it's one that I recommend highly. Not, I, I think if you get up way up north, it, it won't take the freezes, but uh, ours so far have taken it just fine, and it, of course, doesn't get oak wilt, which uh, is very, very important. So I'm, I'm glad yours has turned out to be a good tree for you, sir. Yeah, that was a great recommendation. And I, right next to it, I got a uh, a sycamore that mm-hmm. uh, one of my friends uh, over off of Jones Mossberger. Some birds had dropped something in a pot, <laughs> and and they were so he gave me these three sticks. He goes, I don't know what they are, but you want them? I said, Well, I'll take them. And and so one died. Uh, uh, a dog that I had ate another one, and the other one, I, and the other one I kept in the pot for you know a couple of years, and I said, uh-huh. well. I, let me go ahead and put it in the ground, and I did. And and I had called you a couple of times because it had gone through that phase. What is that disease? Acnos? Yeah, anthracnose. Uh, anthracnose, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, like, year after year, uh, the leaves would round up and die, and I noticed, uh, and I treated it every now and then. And then the guy at Phoenix told me, look, if you if you have a baby and it's acting bad, do you throw your baby out? And I'm like, no, sir. He said, well, just leave it alone. It'll, just, it'll take care of itself. And, of course, it did. Years later, uh, I got a beautiful sycamore in the front yard. That's good. And, uh, uh, it's it's nice and green. And the only problem is during the fall, them darn leaves. But, oh, yeah. yeah. But, and but those balls, those seed balls yeah. and all. But uh, on both your trees, too, do remember, Kenny, if you're worried about lightning damage, uh, it's not real expensive, but you can put a lightning rod up in those trees just like i have on my home and on my barn and i recommend highly lightning protection but uh uh trees are just you know as you know a very important part of the landscape and they don't always survive a lightning strike so uh you might think about that sometime if these are a real important part of your landscape you can get somebody to put a lightning rod up in the top of the tree and protect it and uh, protect you as well yeah that would be awesome and my last question is so what kind of, uh, I guess, uh, flowers or landscaping do you uh, recommend, like, for, for the fall, fall and winter? Well, if you're looking for flowers uh, and you have a sunny place, you can grow pansies, which are going to bloom every day of the winter. Um, in addition, you can grow snapdragons and dianthus, which are going to bloom beautifully in the fall, grow through the winter, and then bloom again in the spring. Ornamental kale and cabbage will give you some very, very colorful foliage to go along with it. Uh, Petunias are showy, showy in the fall. Uh, They're another one that stops blooming when it gets real cold, but then they pick up with their blooming again in the spring. So those are all colorful plants that you can, you know, enjoy flowers and colorful foliage. Um, As far as planting shrubs and trees, this is the very best time of the year to do that. So, uh... Oh, uh, okay. you've as, as much time as you've got, uh, it's a great time to spend some time in the garden. And of course, in the vegetable garden, it's time to plant chard and spinach and lettuce and, 
Uh, still, I think, okay time to plant broccoli and cauliflower. If you're going to grow Brussels sprouts, you better get them in soon because they take the longest to produce. But uh, no reason to sit inside today. Uh, let somebody else watch the football. <laughs> and and uh, and you get out and enjoy your garden, sir. All right. Well, I appreciate you, Bob. You have a good weekend as well. And uh, if I don't talk to you then, uh, uh, happy Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. And to you and your family as well, Kenny. But I imagine we'll find a reason to talk before then. But uh, Yeah, I will. I can't help myself. <laughs> you or me either. Well, get out and All enjoy. Right. And, uh, Jimmy, let's get our last break in here. And, uh, gosh, getting close to time for Martin Bamba to take over. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, gosh, so Jimmy tells me we don't have any more callers, but that gives me time to once again run through the list of activities and what things are going on today. If you're looking for a fun family event, you just really can't beat Nature Fest, which is going on uh, this morning. I believe starts at nine, runs till like one or so. Lots of lots of different fun activities, and you go to the Green Spaces Alliance where, uh, website to find out information on that. I suspect you could also, and I should have tried this a minute ago, but uh, probably if you if you Google Nature Fest, you'll find the information there as well. Uh, that's this morning. If you're up in the near hill country, the Castle Lake Ranch uh, Fire Department up there, uh, Volunteer Fire Department, I'm a big supporter of Volunteer Fire Departments because they do so much to protect us, and gosh, you just, just can't, can't overestimate uh uh, what all they do for us. But anyway, they're having their, their fall turkey shoot, and they're not shooting turkeys. They're shooting paper targets. But anyway, that goes on this morning up there, uh, up between, uh, it's actually between Pipe Creek and Bandera. So if you're in that area, certainly look for that event. The event I'll be going to this evening is the Candelia Volunteer Fire Department's uh, annual Mexican food supper. Uh, always right when deer season begins, that's when they have this event as well. Uh, starts at 5.30, and I guess that's when they're probably going to start serving, but uh, goes on all evening, come and go, really good food, really great value. And if you want to participate, they have silent auctions, they have a live auction, they have raffles and some real interesting things, some uh, if you're into firearms, there are going to be some really good things in there this year. So uh, I will highly recommend uh, that as well this evening. Looking down the road, I was just telling you about a new event I just uh, just learned about uh, next Friday, the 10th, uh, and that's the rededication of the uh, Veterans Memorial down uh, Memorial Circle or actually Auditorium Circle downtown San Antonio. 10 in the morning, going to be a brief event, but... Uh, I know many of y'all out there are served and uh, some continue to serve. And it's just it's important to remember who sacrificed and what they were sacrificing for. So that's going to be a great event next Friday. Then next Saturday, well, again, a couple of events. One of them just sounds like a lot of fun to me is the Commemorative Air Force. used to be the Confederate Air Force, but... Uh, uh, these folks that maintain and actually still fly the vintage aircraft from World War II days, they have what they call their hangar dance, and it's at their airfield up in San Marcos. Great evening of uh, dancing, uh, dining among the the planes that World won World War II for us, and uh, uh, just a tremendous amount of fun. They've got some great music planned, uh, and Black's Barbecue up there is catering the event this year. 
and you know what good barbecue that is. So uh, go to Hangar Dance uh, and, and uh, I Google that, and you can find all the full information you need. So getting to be that time of year when the weather is just uh, very conducive to being outside and some really, really good events to support going on as well. Out in the garden, out in the yard, if you haven't gotten your fall fertilizer down, do it this weekend. The sooner the better. And remember, it doesn't have to say winter riser. We use exactly the same organic fertilizer in the fall as we do in the spring. You hear me talking about the fine Medina products, the fine products from Nature's Creation. I'll also mention Maestro Grow is a great producer of fine organic products, and uh, but they don't do any good in the bag. You've got to get them out there. Um, and be spraying your outdoor plants, anything that's the least bit cold hardy. Be spraying with liquid seaweed. The mixture I recommend is two tablespoons liquid seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses. Use that as a foliar spray, and you will very definitely increase the cold hardiness of everything you spray with it. Getting pretty close to time, you're going to be moving those house plants that have spent the summer out on your porch or patio. Time to get them ready to move inside as well. You may want to dust the soil heavily with diatomaceous earth to drive out any critters that may have taken up residence. Be looking around inside. Make a plan because some of these things, like your ficus, whether it's the fiddle leaves or the benjaminas or rubber plants, any of them, those are going to need to be in a really sunny window. Ponytails are the same way. Chefflerus also take a lot of light. If you're growing things like Chinese evergreens uh, outside in sensitive areas, those will survive in much more subdued light. Um, so just get your places picked out so that you're not just rushing around madly the next time a freeze is predicted. And uh, just, I don't know, lots and lots and lots of fun things to do. Get outside and enjoy this day. If you have home improvement questions, well, Martin Bomba's coming up uh, uh, right after news. And join me again tomorrow, 8 till 11, here on KTSA Radio.